The following excerpt can be found in Volo's Guide to Monsters. It is from a journal recovered from a slain cultist of Yinagu. You can see how he descends from an experimentation upon a captured knoll to fanaticism and insanity in a little over two weeks. Day 2. The subject continues to growl and struggle, despite the removal of its arms and legs. I will let it starve for a few days to weaken its mental fortitude. If the knoll doesn't have some sort of tie to the abyss, I must keep my focus on exploiting that link, even though the creature's mind might remain aware. Day 6. No appreciable loss of vigor. Day 11. Still no appreciable loss of vigor. Day 13. Ritual must commence tomorrow despite subject's high level of mental activity. Day 14. The ritual brought our minds together. I was assailed simultaneously by hunger and rage, as if some great force from beyond had reached out and commanded me only to kill and eat. Though it lasted only for a short time, it was a terrifying feeling to my human mind, but in a way it was also comforting to feel myself much a part of a greater design. What I felt was not the hunger of one beast, but the hunger of all of them. Day 15. Used the ritual to join our minds again. This time I realized where the hunger began. I was consumed by the infinite hunger and boundless rage of great Ienogu, and I knew I could never be sated, yet I felt driven to feed my lord. I killed and devoured a goat, well linked to the soul's mind. I had set aside a knife for the deed, but I killed with my bare hands instead. The flesh was warm. I fed myself. I fed Ienogu. Day 16. Third use of ritual. As I connected, my, my lord deepens. I leave my old concerns behind. His hunger is all that matters. It is greater than me. It is greater than all of us. It is his mark. He made us. He drives us. He eats what we eat. He kills what we kill. He will come if we eat well. He will come if we kill well. He will come if we eat well. He will come if we kill well. We will kill, and he will eat, and we shall be he, and he shall be we. Never alone, never afraid, never hungry. It's a Mimic, the Roundtable Dungeons & Dragons discussion podcast, where you never know what you're going to get. Welcome to another episode in our conversation on mob mentalities, where we look at some of the giggling humanoids out there that can make up the enemy armies in Dungeons & Dragons. I'm Adam, and with me today, as always, of course, is Dan. You're welcome. And this episode is called Noel Warbands, Yenog Who's Coming to Dinner. Nice. Yeah, I was pretty proud of that yeah, one. Yeah, yeah. It, it kind of has a uh, 1990s slasher slash 1990s rom-com feel to it. I like I like the title. Well, you know... Who's... Yenogu, no. you did last summer? That's <laughs> <laughs> not, not at all where I was going with that. <laughs> You know that Look Who's Coming to Dinner is the movie that's looking at racial stereotypes. Oh, yes. They, yeah. yeah. And then they flipped it for like the remake where it was Ashton Kutcher coming to Bernie Mac's house in like, I want to say the early 2000s. So we've reached out to our army of friends and allies to help us break down what a Noel Warband looks like in 5th edition. We've covered the stats and details last episode about the basic Noel, Hyena, the Noel Hunter, the Noel Pack Leader, a Witherling, and the Fang of Yenagu, but now we're covering six more nasty bastards in Yenagu's band of cackling marauders. If you want to hear us talk uh, the first round of, of Knolls as well, before that, we did cover these guys in episode 43, which was 
uh, Noel's the Fast and the Furious. Yep. Where we kind of hit all the broad strokes about lore and whatnot with Terry. Yep. Um, and uh, and we got into a little bit more of who Yinagu is and and what he is up to, what the plans are, and so on and so forth. We also covered him in the Warlock Patrons special, which was the twenty twenty Halloween special. Yep. Yeah. And uh, and we've got uh, of course this previous episode as well that, yep. that we just did. So um, we've been kind of over this. It, a little bits and pieces in the past. So um, you should probably go listen to that before you pick up here. This is really the last part of our conversation on Knowles. Yeah. After today, there's not going to be much else we could pull out of this. Exactly. So um, if, however, you don't have the whatever seven fucking hours to go listen to that shit. um, Make the seven fucking hours to go listen to that shit. No fucking sympathy here. um, I put a lot of fucking work into editing this garbage, right? (laughs) Maybe you shouldn't call it garbage, Dan. I put a lot of fucking work into editing this gem of fucking material. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> anyway, is that what you do? You look in the mirror first thing in the morning and go, you're a, you're a gem, Dan. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> With the same, like, half-lidded eyes and just non-committal statement, yeah. You're, uh, you're a gem. Polished piece of shit. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so welcome to another episode of Dan's Therapy. <laughs> <laughs> look at that luster on that turd. Anyway, so for those of you that... It's been a rough week, Adam. That's what I'm saying. (laughs) It's going to be even longer for the next two fucking hours, I can tell. (laughs) Anyway, for those of you who are not going to go listen to the other episodes, you're such a dick. (laughs) Really quickly, gnolls, of course, are chaotic evil. They are uh, like seven or nine foot tall hyena men. They're feral. They don't really have a lot in the way of uh, using tools, but they can swing weapons. Yeah. They are um, abyssal uh, adjacent, right? Because Yunagu is a demon lord who uh, has essentially willed them into existence through dark blessings. But they are still kind of from the material plane. So they are, for the most part, humanoid. There are some that do get their own different um, classifications outside of that. We covered an undead and a fiend. Uh, as well last episode um and there are going to be some other differences that we talk about today yeah but let's talk about really quickly a war band now a war band is what they have for society but don't think about society these guys are not trading they are not farming they aren't even settling down they are nomadic marauders that's yeah. what they do right so so no war bands are unique in composition and they've got a variety of different gnolls and other creatures it says right in Volos that no two warbands are the same. And you get that because of how chaotic they are. There's no social structure um, the way that we're used to seeing it with the other mobs that we've covered so far. And even if there was any semblance of it, it wouldn't last long with this chaotic nature that a lot of gnolls have. They Well, they're warfaring. Like, they're you, warfaring. But if there's no target for them, they in, they interfight, right? Well, like, they will with other warbands. They tend not to fight among themselves in the same warband. Yeah. Right. But um, they don't like they don't last very long as no. far as their peace goes. The hunger that comes from, you know, this this demonic hunger clouds their judgment. When they don't they can't really think clearly at all. It kind of feels like the traditional uh, idea of like a vampire's thirst a little bit like yep. it, is, it is just this nagging, persistent, overly aware Mixed, um, mixed. Thirst. I think with the uh, the feral ferocity of um, of like a werewolf. Yeah, more, yeah. Right. So, um, the warriors 
or standard gnolls. They call them gnolls in the monster manual, but then they refer to them as warriors and volos. So there's a little bit of confusion about yeah. that. Um, they are the majority of the warband. We talked about how we would build our own warband last episode. Yeah. And Volos actually has kind of a breakdown for it. Um, the hunters are the next numerous after them, um, but significantly fewer of them. Okay. And then the flesh gnawers, which we haven't talked about yet. We'll get into those later this episode. Um, I hate the word gnar. Yeah, it, it, there's got to be a better word for it. I, I, I love it in when I'm reading it. It feels a little gnarly, but like... For those listening on the audio medium who have no idea what we're talking about, we're, again, not talking about a 1990s metal band. It's not, they're not guar. Yeah. Right. It, it's it's gnawer, as in someone who gnaws. Yes. Yeah. Um, and uh, so you have your, your main bulk and then of just like regular gnolls. Then you've got a smaller number of hunters. Then these flesh gnawers that are kind of... Uh, uh, in and, and mixed in with the regular gnolls yeah. as well. Uh, but then you have a number of hyenas that accompany the war band, and it might even match the other three groups combined in numbers. There are so many hyenas, but it's it's very clear in Volos, they're not part of the war band, they accompany it. They do not sleep next to the beds of the gnolls. They're yeah. they're you know, they're not domesticated. The next, no, they're the next hill over waiting for the carrion to, to drop, right? Yeah. So um, there are also a handful of other creatures who will throw in with the Null Warband, but there's not many, right? A lot of times you see the Goblinoids or the Orcs, you get long lists and Volos of who they're going to team up with. with. With Goblinoids, it's like anybody that they can enslave. Well, yeah, but it's more than that. Like, they'll team up with Ogres and, and yeah. others, right? So, But with with Nulls, the only reason that they tolerate these guys is because Yanagu has tainted the souls of these companions somehow. Um, and the gnolls can just inherently sense this. Yeah. When Yinagu gives you his level of madness, you can see it in other people. You're likely to see Lucrotus, which is something that was a little bit new for me mm-hmm. uh, in the research here. Um, and we'll get into that later. There's a bunch of lesser demons that are associated with gnoll warbands, which makes sense with the uh, abyssal link that you have. Um, and then there's trolls, who also have this like nigh-unending hunger. Uh, and this wicked disposition that kind of falls in line with how warbands work. Um, and so they will ally sometimes. Yeah. Additionally, packs of ghouls have been known to be lured into following the warband. Like emptying out of crypts and uh, mausoleums and graveyards and shit. And then following the warband because you're, they're getting new kills. They're not like eating century old so, so corpses. This, so these... these uh ghouls are not ones that are rising up from the battlefield of that that like just happened with the gnolls these are ones that like they'll walk by uh ancient mausoleum and the ghouls will come up from there sensing the destruction and the fresh yeah, murder it, that it, is waving it, if you're not familiar with ghouls in D, they're not zombies they no. don't like rise from the grave there's none of that shit these things are monsters that feed on corpses and of course gnolls make corpses yes. and they're all about feeding sometimes uh, so, so ghouls usually worship orcus they're intelligent undead yeah yeah and so they will worship orcus but they can really be swayed to follow yinagu because yinagu like feeds into their hunger and and with orcus's general disposition i i don't think a ghoul like makes that leap with a lot of uh 
anxiety, right? Like Orcus wants to rule over a plane of nothing with nothing over it. Existent, like he is nihilism embodied. Yeah. I don't think he's going to give a shit about a couple ghouls walking away from him. Yeah. Yinagu wants followers so he can rage and destroy. Orcus would just be happy with an absence of everything. Yes. So, um, speaking of undead, the number of witherlings in a warband is directly proportional to the amount of attrition that the warband has seen. So, we talked about witherlings last episode. They're the undead gnolls that are even weaker than your basic gnoll and... They don't function as regular skeletons or whatnot. They are still enchanted with this demonic energy and, and whatnot. Yeah, yeah. You need a pack lord or a flind in order to make more witherlings after the fact. Can uh, Fang of Yenogu do it? No. All right. What they do, the Fang of Yenogu um, creates the uh, gnolls from the hyenas. But, but oh, then, yeah, that's what it is. Okay. Yeah. So The circle of death. <laughs> pretty much. Um, most warbands will actually have two fangs of Yunagu. Um, and these are literally gnolls that are possessed by demons, by low-level demons. Cool. Yeah, so we kind of glossed over that in the last episode, but I just want to really hit that again. When you kill a fang of Yunagu, you should then have a demon to fight. All right. What kind of demon would you put in, in that spot? Anything under a CR5, depending on how my party is. Just a lot of Hellman's. Mayonnaise. I made that joke last week, too, and you had oddly the same reaction. I'm thinking like a Chasme or okay, um, yeah. or something like a... Not a Garistro. No, but I'm, I might go as far as a Vrock, even, right? Oh, oh, how, how, well, really? Because a Vrock is, what, they're C- off the top of my head. I'm guessing they're close to like a CR6 or 7. Uh, I don't, I'm not sure they're that high. Five or six, maybe, but... But a Fangy Yanogu is a CR4. Yeah, so... Yeah, so you kill the CR4 and out pops the CR6 like Your day's getting bad, friends. I really wish that 5th edition would address how possession works appropriately. Yeah. And come up with rules for both devil and demon. And I guess also other fiend as well. So If, if I was to do this as a DM, I would definitely have a weakened state demon. Like the transition has weakened it in some way. Because if your party just dropped a bunch of shit into this uh, you know, CR4 creature... Dropping another CR five or six on them might is is a quick recipe for a TPK. So I give it to them, but give it like half health or something. Make it roll Constitution saves a disadvantage or something. Sure, right? Or or you could just lean on a closet or something else. To or do just the, use a lesser power yeah. demon. Yeah. Um. So the um thing about the Fang of Yunagu is that they are the ones that will. Do the dark rituals on the corpses so that when the hyena eats um, from this from these kills that the gnolls have made, that then the hyena explodes and becomes a new gnoll. Um, I talked briefly last week my idea about creating them from demons and, and shit before, um, which I still like. But you need a fang of Yinagu to do these rituals on on this side of yeah, like on the material plane. If your warband does not have a fang of Yinagu, there's no way to make more gnolls. Cool. So, hint for the players out there, kill the fangs, the warband will eventually die off. It's also not uncommon or unheard of um, for there to be cultists of Yinagu among the ranks. And we're going to talk about cultists a little bit later in this episode. Okay. Um, it's one of the stranger cults. Like, a lot of the cults in D&D don't make any sense to me. 
like why you would join this crazy shit. I feel like people are always teetering on the edge of madness in Indeed. Dungeons and Dragons, yeah. right? Because everyone's fallen into a cult left, right, and center. No, no dragons. Are, are there are there any undead for me to follow? This no, no, no liches. Okay. No, no. What? Where's the closest closest squid faced thing? I'd want to worship that. Yeah, and so there's a lot of that shit. But but then you don't get a whole lot of like celestial, yeah, cults either. So hmm, yeah, don't don't know what to do with this. This just like, it's really easy for mortals to go evil. Uh, well, it does say when it is talking about the cults, and of course we'll cover this again a little bit later, but. Um, these are typically like the biggest sadists, the most traumatized, the like they're they're look, the writers of fifth edition must believe that there are so many more secret sadists in the fucking world if these are the percentages of the population that we're getting. <sighs> I see humanoid cultists of the uh of Yanogu counting in the dozens, not in the hundreds. No, no, but I just mean like cultists in general, whether it's Dragon cults or Kraken cults or like there are so many cults. You would assume that 3% of the population is secretly worshiping something in their basement. It is so easy to come up. uh, This is going to sound really, really bad, but it's so easy to generate cult-like worship and cult-like status if you have a charismatic enough leader or you have someone who's uh, audacious. I won't say brave, audacious enough to say uh, what other people are thinking. Right. And I mean... We've seen it recently in our real world. And look, the other thing to keep in mind as well is that these gods, these demon lords, these krakens and stuff are proven to have existed or do exist in D&D. Yeah. This isn't, um, well, I almost went after Tom Cruise's little fan club there, but we're not going to do that because no. I don't want to get sued. So, um, <laughs> but it's it's one thing to have kind of blind faith in something that you cannot see but yeah. you can kind of feel as opposed to no that giant mandrel headed thing with two faces is it directly talking to me and he burned the town down you know when there is like tactile evidence of like literal like them talking to you or like you could see the powers and the magic being weaved out it's going to be a lot easier for you to fall down that trap into worship i would suspect Especially since Stockholm Syndrome's a thing. And if your family has been subjugated for generations by a cult, that's where you go. Right? Yep. Now, Yinogu's cult is unique. And we'll, like I say, we're yep. going to get into it. So I'm going to move on. Um, but there is, like, keep in mind that most, most um, warbands will have cult members at least trying to join up. Yeah. So... Um, before we go any further, though, we got to talk about the leaders of the warbands. We spoke last episode about pack lords, but there's something even more insanely powerful for Knowles to follow, and that's the Flind. It's so powerful that it dwarfs the pack lord CR2 with a, its own CR9 rating. Yeah. This is not the most powerful thing in a Knoll warband, but it's close. So, as opposed to goblinoids and orcs who are all sitting there topping out at CR6. These guys are packing more of a punch. Knolls yeah. are not a low-level mob. And and Flynn's are a heavy CR9. Yeah, they are. Depending on the circumstances, you could really fuck up a, a CR9 or 10 party. Yeah. With a Flynn and, and the appropriate number of Knolls around them. So, um, we've mentioned Flynn's in passing a couple of times. But let's dig into these. I think of these guys as Knolls on PCP. And steroids. Yeah. Um, but... Let's go over to Barovia and hear what Megan has to say about who overpowers even a pack lord to wrestle control of a warband. 
Oh, hey guys, and uh, thanks for reaching out to me here at Castle Ravenloft again. This, of course, is Megan. You guys have kind of given me an excuse to take a break. We did end up finding a single casket in the sealed room, which I was talking about, I think, last week. Um, but we haven't opened it yet, though. But um, anyways, I'm taking a break, so I'm exhausted. Just to kind of talk to you guys here about a another rare knoll that I found to be interesting. As I said before, knolls aren't necessarily my personal favorite or my go-to choice. But again, when I read about these guys, I was super interested and I got a little bit more into them. So I'm going to talk to you guys today about the Flind. And so to describe these guys, they are exceptionally larger and stronger gnolls. And they do tend to be the lead in an actual war pack. Not necessarily just a pack of everyday gnolls that you see running around um, just within the forests or in the mountains or wherever have you. Like These guys are actually intended to be a part of the battlement war strategy. And these guys are actually so rare that, in fact, they do tend to only have, of course, one per pack. Uh, they don't tend to have more than one, obviously. This is, again, this is a little bit more of a religious aspect, which I'll get into. So, as I was saying, they are considered to be blessed by their god, Yinogu, um, who I think I've talked about before. I, I feel like I feel like any kind of horde mentality that has a connection to a god, I do find a little bit more interesting. So the blessing does actually come from a magical weapon that they yield, um, usually likely either a flail or again another larger item that a gnoll would use. But basically this object has the ability to sap energy from their foes just by being touched by it. So it is a very, very dangerous weapon to be around, be hit by, and probably very menacing just to see. Because I've described gnolls before as kind of like your, your goth version of like just scary covered in blood covered in demonic sigils like that's kind of how i imagine these folks so then now seeing a weapon that is yielding a probably very scary magic process is just very menacing to me visually in my mind so i feel like seeing one of these on a battlefield would be something worth describing if you were a dm so they are thought to have such a strong connection to their god that they actually commune to determine where the their pack is war path is going to be going and then if you look at their stat block they do have a lot of good aspects to them that really tie into their connection to their god and their ability to speak to it um so i think that's something to kind of remember that these guys not only will know how to manage a battlefield but they have a leg up from a god that's going to be giving them assistance in doing what they need to do. And then, of course, so something to get into is that they do only become a pack flind through, you know, either being defeated in battle and the next person picking up the weapon and taking on that power, that ability, or, you know, being destroyed by another gnoll who wants to take over that job, right? So usually when it comes to a leader being chosen, there's a big, long process for it, which is what I find interesting with these guys is that it's not. It is essentially they have either died in battle, the weapon is dropped, the next null picks it up, and they are now new, the new um, flind within the group, or they've been challenged, killed, and they take it, right? There's not very much anything ceremonial, like, excitement about it. It just happens. But let's get into a quick build while we can. So just to start, these guys have a challenge rating of 9. Um, so these guys are definitely going to be more of a challenge if you come across one of these on a battlefield or just in everyday life, which I don't think would happen. But if it did, if you see a knoll with a giant glowing weapon, it's probably best not to piss it off and maybe stay out of its way. 
So it does have an armor class of 16. These guys do wear armor. Again, I imagine gnolls just have a body covered in piercings, which makes them immune to being hit by things, which I think is a funny visual. They've got a solid amount of hit points. It's 15d8 plus 60, um, so on average about 127, but they do have an average speed of only 30. And then when you get into their um, actual stat block, they, you can tell, again, these guys are built for the battlefield. So they have a strength of 20, um, a dex of 10, and a con of 19. So these guys can punch hits and take hits. They're not built to dodge them necessarily. They're actually built to just take a hit. So this is the person on the battlefield. I imagine if you run up to and punch in the face, they aren't going to move. So that's a fun visual for me. Their intelligence is 11, so average. Their wisdom is actually 13, so they do get a plus one for their wisdom. And then charisma is plus one as well. So again, that ties for me into the religious aspect of them, that they do have... Um, a connection to not only their gods, so they have to have the intelligence and the, you know, the wisdom to be able to speak to them to understand what they're saying, but also the charisma to um, lead the battlefield that they're leading. So things to keep in mind if you're building or utilizing these guys is they're not stupid. They do have um, some strength and saving throws. So they have a plus eight to their constitution and a plus five to their wisdom. So again, because of that plus five to their wisdom, saving throws is, again, they're not your wizard is probably going to have a hard time utilizing strong spells against them. Um, as, and of course, with their constitution of plus eight, if you were going to try and poison them or stun them or do other things, as they can pack a punch before anything really happens to them. Their main skills are intimidate and perception. I know we've talked about it before. I love the fact that their skill sets are more than just their strength. Um, the ability to intimidate is very powerful if utilized properly on a battlefield. And then, of course, perception is nor here nor there they can see you they can find you um you can't really fool them but of course they do have their dark vision um, and a very very strong passive perception these guys can speak null but they can also speak abyssal so again I, in my mind the language of their gods they would need to know how to speak it right so one of the cool things about these guys again they're probably the leaders on their battlefield so if they have their pack of gnolls around them they do have an ability called the aura of bloodthirst which is basically as long as your flind is not incapacitated and in full operation any of their creature buddies within range of them um, can actually utilize a bonus action to bite Again, they have to have the rampage trait, so they have to be within their pack horde mentality grouping. But I find a flind is not going to go into battle by itself. It's going to go in with a group and a horde. And if you have a bunch of them that can suddenly use a bonus attack to bite on top of their regular attack capabilities, I think it's going to be a pretty tough battle for your group. So the they do have to be within 10 feet of the flind. Um, but again, that's a pretty strong reach if they're going into battle together as a horde. As actions for itself, it does have a multi-attack. This is the scary part, is it can do three attacks. Um, usually one of each of its different flails, or it has a longbow, and any of its weapons it can utilize. And again, it gets three attacks, which is quite frightening. So it does come with three written flail attacks. So one is the Flail of Madness, which is a melee attack of plus nine to hit does have a five foot reach and then does 1d10 plus five of just basic bludgeoning damage. But on top of that, whoever it hits does have to make a 16 DC wisdom saving throw, which is pretty high depending on the your group and who you have. And then on a failed save, basically that target has to make a melee attack against another random target within its reach, which can be very frightening if you've got like a paladin and a fighter and just a group of strong fighters that are going in together. 
that are within range of each other is they might actually start hitting each other, which is very frightening. They also have the Flail of Pain, which is a melee weapon attack of plus nine to hit. Um, only a reach of five feet as per usual with a 1d10 plus five bludgeoning damage, but it does pack a bigger punch of psychic damage. So it's a 4d10 on top of that of just plain psychic damage. So if you're playing a game with um, a sanity score, which I know that our group has before, this would be a very frightening weapon to come across because I feel like almost every time if you got hit by this flail of pain, it would almost trigger a sanity roll, which I think would be a really cool role-playing aspect. Like imagine your characters on a battlefield, they get hit by this flail of pain, and then all of a sudden they have to roll a sanity roll and they get a creepy vision, or like basically you just got your bells rung and you're now having a scary vision or a you know, reiterating a scary dream that you had. And then all of a sudden you become frightened on the battlefield, right? Like it would just be very, very scary if you were playing a game like that. But I think really cool. Last one is the flail of paralysis. So basically exactly as it sounds, uh, it is a plus nine to hit with your flail and then a one D 10 plus bludgeoning damage as per the regular weapon. But then you make a constitution saving throw of a D 16. Otherwise you are paralyzed. Um, in on the spot so basically again you get thwacked by this thing in the head and then you are just you got your bells rung and you are just absolutely paralyzed and then the boring one of course they have their longbow which is a ranged weapon of a plus four to hit uh, solid range of 150 or 600 feet for a disadvantage with a 1d8 piercing damage so again i really do not see Knowles using longbows i just don't i think it's weird to have them but i mean they're there to use if you feel like it, but I think that you can, as a DM, if you're throwing one of these at a battlefield against your players, use the bow in a more creative way than just as a bow and arrow. I just do not think it's going to get used, but that's just my personal opinion. So if I was to pick a favorite out of the flails, as I kind of said, I do love the flail of pain. I think it adds a little bit more depth into the battlefield playing capabilities, especially if you do are playing a game with someone with sanity. But I do also like the idea of the flail of paralysis. Like, can you imagine this thing just running through your team, hitting you with this flail of paralysis, and then all of a sudden everyone is paralyzed, and then they're susceptible to all of the gnolls' attacks around you, so like who are able to use their bites against you now that you are in, like incapacitated and paralyzed, right? And you have to watch all of this happen around you. These guys add a lot of flavor context to make a battle just scary in my mind, which I, which I'm really enjoying here. And then again, I want to reiterate and reemphasize that these guys are not dumb. So with a higher wisdom and charisma than basically any other knoll, these guys cannot be fooled. They can't be frightened of you. And they're probably never going to surrender. They're going to fight until you are dead. So I'm going to throw it back to you guys at the Guild Homestead. But of course, as always, I'm interested to hear what you guys think about these guys. Like what flail attack do you find is overpowered, if any? Um, and what would be your favorite that you would want to use on a battlefield since I kind of touched on my own. But yeah, throwing it back to you. If you guys want to follow me on Instagram, you can. It's at Omega O. That's zero M-E-G-A zero. Lots of really good, cute video game content there for you guys, if, should you feel like viewing. But otherwise, enjoy the rest of your conversation on Dole's. Or yeah, Adam, should we roll for it? Sure. Okay. No, that's mine. I got a three. I got a one. All right. So um, my favorite is always going to be the do more damage. I know that there's a bunch of flavor and a bunch of other cool things you can do with it, but hitting that with the extra damage dice, especially psychic damage, which mm -hmm. so few characters are going to be able to protect against. And a hefty amount of psychic damage at that. Yeah. I mean, it's you're not going to knock a, a, a level nine character on its ass. 
but you you're gonna fuck up most people with by the time that you have hit with three different flail attacks the other two are are messing with them and they're scared of the saves but you are chipping away at them relatively quickly there's a lot of d10s flying if you're doing one-on-one combat here my favorite thing to do with uh because always without fail there's always going to be that one bear totem barbarian character who just like flaunts those resistances and of course they have everything but psychic and when they walk up to the gigantic angry knoll with the smoking floating skulled flail they're not expecting to take psychic damage no and frankly the paladin who's like i can shrug off these these saves that i've got to make and everyone around me is fine too right you've got a couple of players there that are going to be really susceptible to the psychic damage so that's probably my favorite because it's low-key shocking. They're going to walk away. They're going to limp away from that yeah. battle going, what the fuck just happened? My favorite attack here is the Flail of Madness. Um, and only because Flynn's embody the chaos of Yanogu better than most. And nothing is more chaotic than making your own party members turn and attack each other. Yeah, I really like that. Right? And... Uh, when you might have the action economy on your side and then this hits you and now he has the action economy on his side, that's going to add for a chaotic battle, right? So I I, I, I absolutely love it. Do you think that the attacks are overpowered, any of them, for CR9? Uh, CR9 with a 16 save, whether it's wisdom or constitution, um, for the madness and paralysis flails. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nah, man. Like, 16 is good. It's a good, it's a good hit, but like... CR9, your party's level 9. Your party's level 10 when they're fighting these things. Level 8 if they're going for that hard encounter. Well, you got to keep in mind, too, that this guy's got minions around him, right? Yeah, that's true, too. So he's part of a warband, which means by the time that you're honestly fighting, you're level 13. The thing I like about it is that the Paralysis one is a constitution saving throw, and we so rarely see a lot of constitution-based saving throws. You get a lot of them out of the Abyss. There's a lot of constitution stuff out of the Abyss. And it it fits for the character, but like Wisdom, a lot of people, especially veterans, go, oh, I need a high Wisdom save, because that's my will, and like, guys, it doesn't work that way anymore, and... I mean, it is that and Dex are the two common saves, but it's it's nice to see that. I figure between Con and Wisdom as well... There's really not a class out there that's going to be able to shrug off both. Yeah, yeah, that for sure. Maybe a Barbarian. But then you hit the Barbarian with the Flail of Pain instead, which does a shit ton of psychic damage. Well, hold on, hold on. Let, let me go through it right now. Who has both Con and Wisdom saves? Artificer doesn't, Barbarian doesn't, Bard doesn't, Cleric. I don't think anyone has those does, two as their main saves. Does Cleric have Con? Okay, well, so to answer this question, we're going to look it up. As we go here, so... Hold on. Well, Dan looks that up. Let me go through the rest of them. Uh, Druid doesn't. Fighter doesn't. Uh, Monk doesn't. Paladin doesn't. Because they're charisma. We've got Ranger. I can will not have both saved, but I can see having high in both. Um, Rogue certainly does not. And your Warlock, Sorcerer, and Wizard, of course, don't either. Yeah, so Barbarians are Strength and Constitution. Bards are... We covered this. Just Clerics, Dan. Just Clerics. Just Clerics? Wisdom and Charisma. There you go. So this looks like it's going to split the difference and you're going to be able to hit. So strategically, and a Flind is smart enough to be able to choose, they are going to aim um, and do this kind of of crazy damage to... to Oh, yeah. 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 So Megan keeps on referring to gnolls as fanatical religious types. Yeah. Um, Now, 
5e has kind of stepped away from the traditional pantheon build that we've seen in previous editions where there's higher gods and lesser gods and oh yeah, yeah. The, the greater and lesser uh, the greater and, and lesser i kind of miss that I, so do i would you put like demon lords and well, they, these lesser deities as lesser deities like these, these patron level stuff, like arch fay and arch devils, and see uh, me myself, no. And my reasoning for that is that I still know the difference between Io and um, Bahamut and Tiamat. Io is a greater god. Your creation gods are greater gods. Mm-hmm. Your um, Bahamut and Tiamat, and and like your um, Coralon. Uh, Coralon is a greater god. Uh, Mordrin is a greater god. But the rest of the pantheon, Loth is a lesser god, right? And they they made that distinction in previous editions. As Modius has been able to step up and play, Vecna has been able to step up and play, but they keep getting cast back down into this yeah. patron level. So I don't see them as being gods. I don't see this as being a religious fervor the way that Maglubiat is is running around and doing his crazy shit, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I would honestly disagree with you. I like, I, I, I wouldn't split that hair so, so fine, uh, finally, if you understand what I'm saying. So like, it, it look, yeah, this is not perfect. Honestly, Asmodeus could probably take Maglubia. Yeah, I would agree. Um, my big stumbling block is we see all of these lesser kind of subset deity for all of the evil alignments. We see very little in the good alignments. That's true. Right. So uh, for us to embrace this second level of deity, there would need to be one in the good. Um, or a handful anyway. Like, or a handful, and, right? And I'm content with them spending the time giving us these the lesser gods in the elven and dwarven pantheons. There are a shit ton in there. Oh, yeah. We yeah. just never get to play with any of them, right? Like it's, no. they're, they're name dropped and that's it. They don't name drop demon lords. But because demon lords are stomping around doing their own shit, they're... I've looked at Yanagu's stat block. He's not a god. I they, mean, he's they, still CR 24. But he's not a god. That's the thing that they've done really well in 5th edition. They used to give god stat blocks. They straight up haven't here. No, not at all. The closest we got was, spoiler alert, um, in Icewind Dale, right? Where they, yeah. they gave us an aspect of a god's avatar, right? <laughs> like, And that's kind of as close as we get. Other than that, we have um, Demogorgon or Orcus or... and like. We, we get these. We get Zerial and Asmodeus and like we have these super beings, but they're still not as powerful or deadly as a Tarrasque. Yeah. Therefore, they ain't gods. And it bothers me to no end that we don't have any sort of good aligned equivalents. Yeah, I would like to see some, but I mean, you do when you start to go into Ravnica and Theros. Yeah, that's right? that's fair. Um, I mean, you can well, get some Theros... dragons that get up there as well. Like, isn't yeah. Ziv Mazet or whatever his name Niv-Mazet. is? Niv Mazet. Niv Mazet. Isn't he up there? Yeah. I mean, you, you could make an argument that we did get the Bahamut stat block, right? Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, but I mean, that's because we've gotten two separate Tiamat stat blocks, right? So um, I just would not treat these quite so reverently yeah right it it's it's not reverence it's just nature at this point yeah i just feel like these cultists are not bowing down out of um, piety they're bowing down out of fear or there's there's a personal gain factor here yeah and when you start to think about the motivations of worship i mean people will worship many different kinds of things dave worships the nfl terry worships his own penis 
everybody has different things that they worship. Dave also worships Terry's penis. I'm just throwing that out there for anybody that's that's listening. So Dan is is a visual in he's, he's a very visual person, and he's just you, you can just see the look in his face right now that Dave just gently cradling. No, we can move on with the notes now. <laughs> this is what we could do. You, well, you were a dick early, Dan. Here it is for you. So, anyways. The thing that I like... I have about, far too little alcohol for this conversation. <laughs> um, one of the things that I want to mention real quickly is uh, about the flail. There's a subtle aspect to it that totally fucks with the action economy. Yeah. Most of the player characters um, that are going to go toe-to-toe with it are the meat shields of the party. And most of them are the damage dealers, right? Now, I know that wizards have some pretty hefty damage dealing stuff. Yeah. But when we're level 10, 11, 12... Your barbarian and your fighters and your paladins, they're still out there doing these massive amounts of damage. But your rage, smite, and action surge, they don't amount to much against the flail of paralysis, which lasts until the end of the player's next turn, which means you can chain these one after another. Mm -hmm. The other side of it is the flail of madness, which has a nasty little detail tacked onto the end that says if there's no one within reach to hit, the affected character loses its action on the next turn. They just kind of stand there dumbstruck. Yeah, which means that it takes damage, runs away towards the nearest creature, can't get there in time, and just stands still. Keeping in mind, it's also incurring attacks of opportunity when this happens. Yeah. So you're really messing with the action economy here. Your guys that are going to get right up in your face and fight are going to be relatively useless. You need your ranged people and your spellcasters. But... Again, a Flynn should not be the only one on the battlefield. No. You should be able to tie those guys up pretty easily with um, hunters with their ranged attacks. Or Frick, that barbed arrow paired with Flynn's is just mental. Yeah, so there's, there's a lot. There's a lot going on here. So there is one other thing that Megan said that kind of bothers me. And it is this, her ripping on the idea of gnolls with longbows. Again, it's a fairly common discussion point as we've seen. Um, not including the hunters and their crazy barbed arrows that I love so much. How do you picture longbow tactics with a no war band, especially one with a flint in? If I can be honest, um, I see it very similar to standard, um, standard warfare. The archers stand in the back and shoot when you've got your first, second and third waves of gnolls running forward. Your standard knoll is going to run forward 30 feet. They're not going to dash. They're going to run forward, then loose arrows. And then run forward 30 feet in the next turn and loose arrows again. And they're going to continue to do this while the hyenas and the uh, other faster members are going to catch up. When you've got things like the Fang of Yanagu doesn't have a bow, yeah, they're going to dash. Which means you're going to get gnolls in fucking waves. But while that happens, you're also getting peppered with arrows. I We do know that gnolls have a rudimentary, especially in their warbands, have a rudimentary sense of tactics. And the idea of surrounding an enemy, I would say, would fit in that. So personally, I see arrows harrying and, and this melee initial melee wave slowing a party down enough for the gnolls to, to completely envelop their prey. Right? They are. They want to make sure nothing gets away. They want to make sure everything in that pocket dies. So they're going to wrap themselves around, especially with the hunters. They're going to wrap themselves around, and they're going to attack everything. Uh, yeah, I think they're going to use hyenas for that as well, frankly. Oh, yeah. And 
the other thing too about hyenas is they're one of these kind of creatures that will herd weaker members away from the strong pack as well that they're like the herd that they're chasing mm-hmm. they're going to find the young the slow the infirm the old and they're going to cut them off and separate them so i think that by dropping arrows in the middle of a crowd when i'm thinking about them attacking a village right mm-hmm. they're going to just drop a hundred arrows if they can i mean not a hundred obviously but they will drop dozens of arrows down in the middle of town to make everybody scatter because now everybody's going to get picked off. Yeah. So there's one other kind of knoll in 5th edition so far um, that we haven't covered. All right. Everything else after that is not technically a knoll. Um, but this one has to be one of the most initially frightening things to see on a battlefield. And uh, Nick actually has some personal experience with these guys. So let's check in with him now. Ravaging, gnawing, ripping, biting, tearing. The hideous knoll loped into view, and the glint of the yellowish lantern light upon its blade told me that it was indeed time to die. The knoll felt no pain and could not be intimidated, and due to its abyssal origins, it certainly could not be reasoned with. I tell you this now from the comfort of the wayward house in Silvery Moon, having only just barely escaped its clutches through a series of improbable events. Not two days prior, on an ill-fated expedition into the nether mountains, I happened upon a band of hobgoblin slavers. Or, to be more precise, they happened upon me. Blindfolded and shackled, I was forced to march over the rocky terrain, until we eventually arrived at a small camp in a shaded mountain gorge. Here, the hobgoblins had constructed a series of small pens containing the unfortunate victims of their rather successful operation. I was unceremoniously dumped into one of the smaller pens, mercifully close to the roaring fire in the center of the camp, which provided some small modicum of warmth among the shaded icy crags. As I huddled in the frozen mud, I noticed some small movement from the next cage over. At first I thought it was a bear, or perhaps a large wolf, but then the creature drew itself to its full height, a seven-foot monstrosity, all muscle and fang. How the hobgoblins came into possession of such a creature is beyond fathoming, but nevertheless, here it stood. The knoll began to get agitated at my presence, looking me up and down, pacing back and forth within the confines of its tight pen. The clattering amongst its feet drew my attention, and there, to my horror, I saw the picked, clean remains of several humanoids. The sudden realization dawned on me. I wasn't the slave. The knoll was the slave. I was to be the slave's food. I knew then that I needed to devise a way to escape, and fast. I recalled that knolls were voracious hunters, and their ability to track prey by scent was unparalleled. Grasping for a jagged piece of shale, I drew a cut across the palm of my hand and smeared the outpour of blood across my face, chest, and arms. The knoll quickly picked up the blood scent. I could see it becoming more unsettled, more furious. The creature grasped the bars of its pen and began to violently shake and rattle them in an attempt to get at me. The hobgoblins, having heard the commotion, came running, spears in hand, in an attempt to quell the ravening beast. The hobgoblins surrounded its pen, but the knoll would not relent. Then, all of a sudden, the knoll, he destroyed his cage. Yes, yes, the knoll is out. The hobgoblins standing between myself and the knoll were the first to fall, clawing and biting at any inch of exposed flesh it could reach. Once it had tasted the flesh of its captors, it became unstoppable. The creature stooped, only briefly, to collect the weapons of one of the fallen hobgoblins. The knoll's rampage continued, butchering anything that was unfortunate to come within an arm's reach of it. 
all eyes in the camp were fixated on the unfolding carnage, giving me ample opportunity to bash apart the fastenings holding my pen closed. As I scrambled away over the ice and rocks, I took one last look over my shoulder, back at the knoll, back at the horrifying death machine that had secured my freedom. I could swear I almost saw it glance in my direction before it resumed its grisly work. My research, based on the events of this encounter, led me to believe that I had been in the presence of what's known as a knoll flesh gnar. This medium-sized humanoid is of the knoll subtype, typically sporting 4d8 plus 4 hit points, and with a base speed of 30 feet. The creature has below average mental stats, not particularly intelligent or worthwhile to talk to, although it more than makes up for it with its physical capabilities, particularly its agility although its hardiness and brawn are above average as well. The Flesh Gnar has 60 feet of dark vision, considering it's only a challenge rating of 1, an excellent passive perception of 10. In addition to its multi-attack, which allows it to strike with two weapons and its bite, the Flesh Gnar possesses the Rampage ability, which allows it to move and attack again anytime it strikes down an opponent. In case the Flesh Gnar ever needs to escape a battle, or chase down its wounded prey. It also possesses the Sudden Rush action, which allows it to move up to double its base speed without provoking any additional attacks. On the whole, I would say this creature is pretty terrifying, and I was exceptionally fortunate to survive the encounter such as I did. I'm going to go warm myself with a cup of hot tea, and I'll pass it back to you guys. You know, the thing that I love about Nick is that he's such a natural writer. You never know what plot points or details that he's going to inject, and like... I, I want to read the words that he says in a book. Yeah, we've we've had a, a couple of people post saying, hey, we want, last time Nick was on, he had that poem. Yeah. And, hey, we need that. And then I sent a message off to Nick saying, hey, I need the words to that. And he's like, uh, I lost it. And I'm like, great. So now I have to sit down and transcribe it. Did Thanks, you actually Nick. do that? I have, yeah, I've got it now. I've got it transcribed. I'm just trying to make it look pretty before I post it on the Reddit. Yeah, okay. So for CR1, this guy can really, really, really move. Using the sudden rush action, it can move up to 90 feet per round, but it gives up any of its attacks. That's an incredibly situational use. I don't know if I like it. I I do. I like it if you are covering 200 feet and you watch these guys pull ahead. But it, it has to be, like, you have to watch it happen for it to be effective. Yeah. It's theatrical but once you've covered that ground you look they've got slightly below average mental stats and slightly above average physical stats um and it, it kind of belies the obvious tactic of rushing into battle like it's it's powerful for its cr but with 14 ac and what was it, 40, 48 plus four hit points yeah yeah it's it's not going to survive many rounds so it's going to pull ahead of everybody else and then you know three cards them will be dead by the end of the first round or maybe two the deck saving throw of plus four is nice for the area of effects, but it doesn't offset these weaknesses. I see these guys playing their role in the warband just that step above the hyenas. Like, yes, they've they've got a good CR and they, and they've got this, um, they've got a lot of power to them. But I see them as the ones who are picking off running prey. That's why I like this sudden rush ability. Well, that's what the hunters are for. Yeah, the hunters slow them down. These are the guys. Dog run and go in there and, and pick them off. Right. Yeah. I also really like these guys for ambushes. Yes. Yeah. They don't inherently have anything stealthy to them, but well, but they've got dark vision, which means they like to hunt at night. Otherwise, they wouldn't have it. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's true of it. Of we always say everything has dark vision. Dungeons and Dragons needs to happen at night. Stop having adventuring days and have adventuring nights. 
welcome to D&D. Exactly. The monsters yeah. come out in the dark, right? So, but with these guys, I can picture them sitting there waiting. Well, they're essentially just low-level shock troopers. That Like, they're designated to move in numbers um, and soak up a lot of early damage. The three attacks and the multi-attack might seem great at first, but then you have to realize that the bite only gets 1d4 plus 2 damage, and the two short swords it carries can only do a 1d6 plus 2. These things aren't doing a ton of damage, but they are getting in there and being those ambush shock troopers. Yeah, I feel like they're going in to soften everybody up, but these are going to be the kamikaze knolls. They're in there to die, right? Like, they're running forward, and I know that... The, the, these flesh knotters are, um, they are a little bit weak. They're supposed to be feral as fuck, right? Yeah. And they're supposed to get in there and really mix it up. By the time that we're fighting Flynn's, these guys are dead within two rounds. And they're not doing enough damage to really be worth it. Until you start looking at the fact that they're sucking up the action economy. Yeah, that's their role in a higher level warband, for sure. Like, when you're talking tier two, tier three yeah. for these, they are there to... Be an annoying distraction because a 1d6 and 1d4 isn't a lot. No. But this is going to be a death by a thousand cuts. Yeah, and that's really what we're going to see at higher levels of this is you're relying on the numbers. While there are bigger creatures and whatnot, you are going to start seeing things like um, like uh, a handful of these uh, fangs of Yanagu and some of their allies, a troll, right, and, uh, and a flind and a handful of gnolls that are in there mixing it up in battle. But these guys are going to soften up a little bit. They're going to eat up the action economy early. Mm-hmm. While the hunters are coming in and chipping away at hit points and scattering the party to hide behind uh, cover and shit like that, right? Which I don't know why. Everybody that I ever DM likes to stand out in the open and fight. You are just about the only person, Dan. You and Terry are the only people that look for cover in a ranged fight. Everyone else just plants their feet and says, I can do it. I do more damage than you. Yeah. No, uh, I think that... For Terry, that's because he has legit real-world tactical experience and knows that finding cover and getting, you know, sur- surviving a battle is just as important as winning a battle. Oh, m- more important, I would say, because then you can win a battle tomorrow as well. Exactly. Um, me is 20 years of D&D has left me traumatized and I've learned a fucking lesson or two. So learn from my experience, find cover. Right, and so <laughs> these hunters are going to scatter people. That That is where I think the flesh gnawers come in. These two are going to work very well together, and that's why we get them both in Volos. Yeah. Like, they're on the same page even, right? So the idea that one scatters and the other one catches up, right? Just like you said about picking them off, and then these guys catch up and, and, and take them out. Yeah. That, Gnaw on their flesh. Yeah, yeah, flesh gnawers. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. there we go. Anyway... So we're done with actual, like, null types right now. That's the end of the episode. We're going to see you guys next week. No? Adam's shooting daggers at me, guys. We're not allowed a half-hour-long episode? Let's cut to the fucking thing, Dan. Okay. Hello, podcast people. Podcast people? We're recording. Yes, but it makes them sound like pod... We're recording. You're recording. Fuck. Hello, podcast people. We've got a couple of things going on that you might not know about, and so we thought we'd cut away to a little reminder. First of all, we just want to point everyone to our YouTube channel again. We appreciate that all of you listen on your respective favorite podcast apps, but the It's a Mimic YouTube page has all of our shows laid out in playlists. That means you can listen to our Dragon episodes back-to-back, or dig through the Campaign Builder or Touring the Multiverse series without scrolling through the backlog or having to use a search function. 
New episodes get uploaded within a week of airing on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or whatever, but the whole backlog is up there. Even the episodes we're embarrassed about. Yeah, fuck, those early cold opens were sloppy. Yeah. And delicious. The other thing we want to mention... Hey, Dan, you know what else is sloppy but delicious? Whatever you're going to say next is just going to get cut, so... Well, the other thing we want to mention is our sneaky little store that lives an unassuming little life on our website. There are stickers, magnets, phone cases, notebooks... Cups, water bottles, coffee mugs, and travel mugs. I could have a mug. I'm tired of your ugly mug already, man. I want a mug. We even have masks in a variety of sizes because we're socially conscious people. The current designs are for the It's a Mimic mic and the Deep Dark Irradiance logo, but we'll be updating the store as time goes on. How big are the mugs? I don't know. There's a standard one and a tall one. And a travel mug too. Jesus, I need to look at this website more often. So, please take a second to check out what we have to offer. We really appreciate the donations we've received through the website, but we want to make sure that you guys have the option of getting something for your hard-earned money. Every little bit helps keep the lights on and the side projects rolling. And we love you for your support. So thank you to everyone out there who visits www.itsamimic.com and checks out our online store there. (laughs) Hey, there's even a little pin with a logo on it. And don't forget to check out the YouTube channel for perusing the older episodes. Now, without any further delay, let's head back to the show. Jesus, there are three different kinds of stickers, Dan. We are capitalist whores. Will you please take these damn commercials seriously? No. All right, so, cultists. We talked about them a little bit um, earlier, and let's sit down and actually break down what exactly we're fucking dealing with here. How did it take us 108 episodes to finally sit down with the third part of Dungeons and Dragons, which is Dungeons and Dragons and Cultists? Yeah, right? Like, there's so many fucking cults. Well, we talked about them with the Warlock Patrons episode. I guess that's true, yeah. And honestly, cultists I find to be boring as fuck whenever we see them in a module. The module cultists are just piles of stat blocks that have one interesting move it's like somebody watched uh temple of doom a little bit too voraciously and just thought all cultists just stand at the thing with a beating human heart in their hand and that's as deep as they go they're not as sinister as you find in like the call of cthulhu games it's not even that for me it's i feel like they gave us krakens and dragons and people figured out how to fight them so we have to give them minions and it's easier to slap robes on a human than it is to actually give them legitimate minions. Yeah. Like drakes and wyverns that are intelligent enough to communicate with the dra- Like, that'd be amazing. I want to see that. But that's just not the D&D flavor. No, you get cults. So let's talk specifically, though, about Noel cultists. Okay. They speak about cultists, not acolytes. And the big difference is cultists, you can tell, are crazy. It says that right in the lore. Acolytes are just people that follow a god or follow a patron, but a a cultist is straight up batshit crazy and is usually evil. A, a acolyte is someone who dipped their toe in. A cultist is someone who's dived in headfirst. No, it's not even that. Acolytes have dived in headfirst too, but they are learning and they are bettering themselves. Cultists are out there for that. They're a single issue voter. That's what a cultist is. Okay. Right? They're not there to make the country better. They're there for their fucking gun rights, motherfucker. Right? And that's that's it. Now, go ahead and love your guns. I like guns, but I don't vote about guns. Right? So, like, that's not my fucking yeah, reason exactly. for showing up at the polls. So, let's talk about Knowles, though, specifically. Noel cultists and the cultists of Yinagu are nihilistic outcasts. 
and they've got nothing to live for. It says that right in the text. <coughs> so that they should always have some sort of sob story in their background um, that Yinagu manipulates. If you ever end up talking to a cultist, because remember, you don't really talk to gnolls. They don't speak common, mm-hmm. right? So when you are interviewing or interrogating a cultist, this is where you're going to get the information about the war band. You should be giving them the sob story about how life hates you and nobody loves you and on and on and on, right? And so that's why they turned to Yinagu. They don't seek him out. The demon lord appears to them in dreams and he's usually offering power and salvation amid dreams of savagery and brutality, right? But it's not the power they crave or the vengeance that lures in the cultists, but the sense of belonging. That's why they're these outcasts. They've yeah. lost everything and they've got nothing. They have no purpose. And so this becomes their purpose. The cool thing about them that I like is they start to consider themselves to be gnolls. Yep. Um, they begin rampages in their own little villages and whatnot. And they will slaughter people without any subtlety at all. Normally they get caught. When you lack the subtlety in murder and you're in the middle of a city heart, that makes sense. Yeah, as a, as a matter of fact, it says right in the lore, they get killed by guards a lot. Not soldiers, guards. The, yeah. the, the first person to show up there is just going to take out the cultist and be like, well, what happened here, right? Now now that he's dead, let's let's look at the crime scene. Yeah. Um, but those who do commit the crimes and get away with it are going to escape out into the wilderness and they're going to continue their violent mayhem. They're going to try to hook up with a, a Noel Warband and become a part of that. Um, they're not always successful. Yeah. Because do you know how to find a Noel Warband? Um, I would assume the smell. Yeah, that I mean that's a that that's a good safe bet, but I, I, like not the smell of wet dog, the the smell of decaying flesh. Like they will leave a trail of destruction. Yeah. So these cultists are going to try to follow in that wake, um, becoming more and more gnoll-like as they go, uh, and even trying to like take on their physical characteristics and, and whatnot. Obviously, this doesn't go well. Gnolls, they go and go and go and go and go. Humans just, need to sleep. It doesn't matter how crazy you well, are. Well, gnolls technically sleep. It says in the lore that they don't rest. It also doesn't give them like undead fortitude where you don't have to yeah. eat, sleep or any of that shit. So like they do have to have little downtime, but it's not like they're sitting there whittling around yeah. the campfire, right? They stop when they're fucking exhausted and it's time to pass out. Cultists will not have the ability. They're driven forward by their fervor, right? Um, and that is going to be one of their defining factors that they're going to be run goddamn ragged. Yep. Most gnolls are nearly identical in both behavior and mentality. Um, but Noel cultists are going to try to emulate that. But remember, they're emulating. It's not perfect. You may be able to break through to them. Yeah. Um, especially if you're going to use some magic. Yeah, I, I suspect that uh, finding and trapping a... I mean, we saw with the thing that uh, Brad read out to us at the beginning of the episode. Yeah. We saw this descent into madness that this guy goes through. And... If you're assuming that you've made it two weeks of being a human in a no war band, which I mean, impressive yeah. in, in fact alone, you are going to be completely unhinged. Some magic might still get through to you, right? And if the agony of having recently filed your teeth down doesn't 
uh, distract you heavily. Some non-magical means might get to you as well, depending on how new of a cultist this guy is. Yeah. And frankly, your PCs can try to do that, right? Yeah. Like, because they can try to break through because the cultists, like I said before, this is the place that you go to for your social encounters and your role-playing in a war band. Would you give a cultist, like a fresh cultist of Yanogu, advantage against intimidation checks? No. No? No. No, no, no. But I mean, like, when you intimidate them and they become scared, because even gnolls can get scared, right? They no. can... They can they're not I- immune to it, yeah. They can identify that they are going to lose, and their fear will just be, I need to live so that I can kill tomorrow. Yeah. Right? Or, I identify that I cannot win this fight. It is time to move on to the next thing. Right? So, it's not pissing yourself in terror like the lowly kobold. It is a different kind of fear, but it's a different priority. Remember, they have nothing to live for. They have nothing to lose. Threatening to kill them is just going to make them laugh. Yeah. So inflicting pain or saying, you know what, we will cut you off from Yunagu. You will you will be fed vegetables, my friend, yeah. and only vegetables. That's going to fuck with them. So you got to think about it in a different way. Yeah, exactly. So there are these five different tables in Volos that help build unique cultists of Yunagu. Okay. Um, and I'm going to go through them really quickly with a couple of options each. Okay. Uh, you're supposed to roll on them. The first one is the physical features, um, which I think is a D12 table. All the rest of them are D6, and they're essentially like a background. Yeah, okay. Um, but the physical features has stuff like missing an arm, infested with maggots, horrific smell of rot, and my favorite, vestigial twin embedded on your back. Um, what? I know, right? I have to assume that these are things that you would also see on gnolls. So th- oh, yeah. So think about how gross a gnoll warband is. As much as they're all very similar in appearance and mentality, they're going to have these weird little gross things like missing limbs, infested with maggots, smelling like rotten flesh. This this idea of like vestigial twin, like embedded on their back, the, the phrasing of that makes me think it was after the fact. Like the, uh, embedded, cor- yeah. the corruption of Yanogu has caused a secondary growth that now you think talks to you oh you know what that's pretty cool i hadn't thought about that that's neat um for personality traits you get stuff like i hate the sun and travel on by night yep uh and i have stopped using language and instead rely on growls and shrieks that guy's gonna be hard to have a social encounter with uh i yeah i would choose that one very carefully if i've got four or five cultists one One of them them will have that that, yeah right and now i'm getting the kind of the the hyenas from lion king feel Right, like, yeah, there's one over in the corner just yeah. just babbling Thanks, around. Thanks, Ed. Yeah, um, you get ideals like others are planning to kill and eat me. I must find a way to kill and eat them first, also known as the Brad mentality. And when the time comes, even my allies will die by my hand, Otherwise which is known as the Adam mentality. Oh no, that that's Dave and Terry. He gives him le petit more with his hand. Wrong kind of death. So so there are also bonds like I call the weak from our war band so that. We remain strong. And then, of course, there's another one, which is, I devour the weak to purge them from the world, and the strong to blunt their power. All of these fit heavily with gnolls, and you, like this this metal album cover feel of them. Yeah, and then when it comes to flaws, you get things like, I lack tactical guile and rely on overwhelming, overwhelming attacks, which is 
pretty standard for gnolls. Yep. Uh, and then, of course, my desire to torment my foes sometimes gives them the opportunity to outwit me. Yeah, okay. These these play good flaws. I, li- I like these things. You're really starting to get the flavor of how gnolls run. I know this is meant for cultists of Yinagu, but I'm really going to look into this for how I'm going to think about gnolls. Gnolls aren't just a pack of rabid dogs. They have tactics. They have... But they're very, like they're very single minded with it. They're, yes. they're not quite just a force of nature like a zombie is, right? Um, or sturges, right? These things are, you get enough of them, you get a swarm or a horde or whatever, you're going to run into some issues. But when it comes to actual gnolls, there's a little bit more there. If you have comprehend languages or tongues or, you know, another way to get through to them or to understand them, there's more going on here than, than you may realize. Um, but, there's a real hard abyssal twist to these yeah. guys. Yeah. Uh, okay, so uh, we've talked about cultists for a little bit, but let's check in with Terry uh, and see what the stat blocks are uh, for cultists. How deadly are they actually? All right, thanks Adam and Dan for passing it over to me. I'm still over here at the Green Dragon Inn. I'm at the point now where I'm so drunk that... I'm really starting to get interested in this dwarf over here. But of course, I'm a modern man. I know that they we were not allowed to say dwarf anymore. They prefer halfling. Anyway, I'm going to be talking about cultists and cult fanatics today in regards to being embedded within a null warband. How interesting. My mind was racing when I started to think about these things. So typically you think null warband because, you know, everybody in D&D thinks finally swept uh, stone floor, everything's done at 2 o'clock on a Thursday afternoon, it's overcast, it's 19 degrees, and all of the gnolls look the same, and there's nothing else going on. But in reality, that's not in reality. In our fantastical reality, that's not what's happening. There will be cultists and other humanoids following along with them. This, this may include orcs, uh, humans, and other types of humanoids, I only know two. Uh, but they're going to be different to the cultists that, that you typically know. You know, you think cultists, you think almost prestigious or at least uniformed right cloaks they may have a a red trim or a purple trim or a sea green trim if they're cult of the kraken or something like that but it's it's not necessarily going to be that way when it comes to gnolls you know we're we're thinking they may be like they're they're gonna be ravenous and ferocious and they and they've pledged themselves to yinogu because they're they they're embedded and fanatical about that gnoll way of life that ferociousness so they may have big gaping sores or wounds in them they may have weapons from old wounds in there they may be covered in rot and maggots or have an eye missing because the only thing that's important to them is yinogu and the kill and and following that warband so let's take a look at some stat blocks i'm going to talk about two different types of cultists so cultists and cult fanatics i'll give you rough uh, differences between the stat blocks and then i'm going to give you some ideas that i think about okay let's talk about the regular cultist typically medium humanoid any race uh, and any non-good alignment, and it's definitely going to be that way uh, when attached to a, uh, a null warband. All of the stats are, are fundamentally quite average or slightly above average. We're thinking 10 to 12 on everything. Highest one being dex at 12. That's a plus one modifier. Skills, we've got deception and religion, both plus two. Okay, passive perception of 10. Languages, any one language, and it's usually common. That's interesting because... Th- that means that perhaps they they can't communicate very well with their null warband or maybe you could play it that um 
that, that it's the other way, it's that they can't communicate with people that speak common. You might choose to have that one language be, be a little bit different, that's totally fine, but they have what, uh, what's, what we call dark devotion. So the cultist has an advantage on saving throws against being charmed or frightened. That is critical. That's critical because they are ferocious. They are going to charge at you as one, as a unit, and they cannot be frightened. You are going to be on your toes. Actions, typically it's a scimitar, melee weapon, attack plus three, uh, reach of five feet. It's going to be one creature, average damage of four. That's 1d6 plus one is slashing damage, okay? But it doesn't need to be a scimitar. If you think that these, these, uh, these humanoids are kind of you know, ferocious and almost acting like they're lower on the evolutionary scale. It could be any type of crude hammer or club or, or anything that they're using. Table leg, whatever, it's going to be a rock. Um, but these, these cultists are going to swear allegiance to the dark powers. Uh, you know, typically it would be like elemental princes, demon lords or arch devils. In this case, it's going to be Yinogu, okay? But what is important is that they are fundamentally average in their physical and mental characteristics. That doesn't mean that their will, their determination... Um, or their, their their ferociousness is going to be lower because it's not at all. It's not at all. Now, when we compare this to a cult fanatic, cult fanatic is going to be the same in that it's a medium humanoid, any race, any non-good alignment, all that stuff. AC is going to be a little bit higher, 13 for a cult fanatic, and I'll go back and say it's 12 for a cultist. Standard hit points for cultist is 9, that's 2d8. Standard speed of 30 feet, I should have mentioned that. Everything is up tier. Armor class for 13, Cult Fanatic. Hit points are higher, 68 plus 6. That averages out at 33. Speed's still going to be 30 feet. But let's look at the stats here. We're still saying that the lowest one we're going to see here is 10. That's that's what you consider to be an average human. So a 10 intelligence for Cult Fanatic, that is your intelligence. I know you think you're smart, but your intelligence is 10. Highest thing we're going to see is 14, Dexterity. That's a plus 2. You know, compared to regular humans that we see around, you think dexterity of 14, that's essentially, that's essentially Usain Bolt, okay, in D&D. &D. It really is. It's just because we have other creatures that are so fantastical, but for the real world, 14 is Usain Bolt. So we have this crazy World War Z type zombie cult fanatic that's completely ferocious and covered in maggots, charging at you as one with the rest of its warband. And you really need to play into that when it comes to roleplay. When it, and I don't mean role-playing as in talking back and forth. I mean role-playing as in how you're you're describing and, and acting out how this creature interacts with you in more ways than just talking. Dark devotion as well, but also spell casting. We have, we have a, a range of cantrips, first level and second level spells here. Wisdom being the spell, um, being the spell casting ability, a spell save of DC 11. It's going to be plus three to hit with spell attacks. But we've got for cantrips, light, sacred flame, thaumaturgy, first level, command, inflict wounds, shield of faith. Command, hugely important. Command can give you the command to hold or drop. This is going to be hugely important when you have a, a ferocious warband attacking you. What about second level spells here? Hold person. Hold person will be critical when coming from the enemy and spiritual weapon. So now you have a floating spiritual weapon that's also attacking you. There may be multiple cult fanatics that you're dealing with here. This is not an easy enemy to deal with. You can use certain things to your advantage, but it's not an easy enemy to deal with. So, a cult fanatic by the regular stat block will have a multi-attack, but it's mostly going to be using daggers. Again, don't feel glued to that. That's more like advice, a guideline. We can change it in and out however we need to, but fanatics are often part of a cult's leadership. So using their charisma and their and their dogma really to influence and prey on those of weak will. And we 
we think about that, we see that in everyday life. You can argue that there's cult fanatics in, in the areas of politics or military leadership or even local sort of leadership, social media. You know, everybody's got an opinion. Everybody's trying to sway somebody, you know. I always used to joke about in 2013, 72% of the population woke up allergic to gluten all of a sudden. That's because of this type of, it really is, online fanaticism that makes people do that. That's why these widespread opinions change because of these big leaders like this that are very influential. And so how are we going to play these people? Well, when you think they're, they're essentially average in most things, apart from the fanatics that are going to be a little bit physically more adept. So what this means is defensively, they're going to be on you very quickly. They absolutely will not stop. How do you beat an enemy that is not afraid of death and will not stop? And really this is what comes back to what humans are in real life anyway. We're designed to be long-term endurance mammals that's why we can or we're supposed to be able to i know it's not like that these days we're supposed to be able to move fairly slowly over long distances and that's actually how we hunted our prey you know you can be a gazelle and you can run away one two three four five six times but if i keep coming over the hill for the seventh eighth time i'm going to get you through exhaustion and that's the way it's supposed to be with humans. But that's the way that you should play it with these cultists and cult fanatics alongside a null warband is that they just will not stop. You can run away, but they will keep coming. They will keep coming. And now you're down spells. Now you're down resources. Now you don't have time for a short rest. And that is how you should play them offensively. Because the players may laugh at first because it seems like an easier enemy, but it really isn't because they just will not stop. What does that mean on the flip side? That means that their behavior is going to be very predictable. They're fanatical. They're single-minded. They believe 100% without a shadow of a doubt that they are correct. That's insanity, right? Is that they'll keep doing the same thing over and over because they believe that it's correct. They believe that it's correct. Their mind cannot be swayed. But it means that patterns can emerge as well. And as a DM, you owe it to your players to offer them those patterns. These are not intelligent thinkers in that there's going to be um, new creative strategies or that they're going to learn from the last time or they're going to change things and or read up about a last battle. And it's not like that. It's they have their strategy, have their thing that they do. Not even much of a strategy. It's just more of a, a single method. And while it's very effective, it's predictable. You as the players need to understand that quickly and need to work with your environment work with what you have on your party to um, to counteract that predictable behavior these are the behavior these are not like hobgoblins for example these are not strategic thinkers it's a very single minded method that works for them most of the time so that's it from me on cultists and cult fanatics. I myself would have a lot of fun not only playing these as a DM, but also dealing with this puzzle as a player. I love that pressure of this game. I like I like it when that pressure's on. I like it when you have to change the strategy or the tactics um, two or three times either in a battle or a, or a larger sort of campaign uh, based on your enemy. And this is the type of thing that gets my, gets my blood pumping, gets my heart racing, and makes me really feel immersed in the game. But as a DM, if you're playing DM here, you owe it to the players to play these single-minded fanatics effectively. These are not like the rest of the humanoids. And that's it. I'll pass it back over to Adam and Dan. Thanks very much for having me. I'm gonna go and uh, gonna go and uh, try my hand at this dwarf. Sorry, halfling. I'm I'm pretty sure Terry's just drunk again. Ah, oh, fuck. I feel sorry for the waitress there. Okay, I think Terry might be onto something. Shall we talk about gluten? No. Okay. Um. Well, 
The one thing that I do love, actually, is that Terry and I both mentioned the evolutionary advantage of endurance in humans in different fucking Noel episodes, completely independently of each other. Rather than the uh, evolutionary disadvantage of gluten in humans now. That's that's right, yeah. yeah. No, I did a fucking spit take when I, when I heard him say <laughs> that. I'm like, wait a minute. Terry didn't hear me record my bit from last week, right? So, like, it was... It made me laugh pretty hard when I heard that. Yeah, and it really does lean. The lore does lean in that direction as well. Um, let's let's talk to about the languages real quick here. The stat block says only one language, but does that even make sense for these cultists? I I, I weep for the role playing experiences lost. I mean. <sighs> Look, is there any gain look, to look, it? There's no point in ever doing that if you're worshiping Asmodeus. You fucking speak infernal yeah. and common, right? Like that's just you. You're a cultist. You speak what the if you you speak whatever the fuck a kraken speaks. If you worship to a kraken, right? Like that's yeah. that's how it should go. It doesn't make any sense to me. They don't get common, and they're they're freaking whatever their worship, right? Mm-hmm. So um, these guys, it's Yinagu. They should speak abyssal. They should have a general, vague understanding. Like, understands but can't speak null. Yeah. Right? But... Just to just to follow directions on a battlefield. Yeah. So, I want to talk really quickly about the cult fanatic. Sure. With spellcasting, high charisma, leadership, does this feel like a good fit for null warband? Or would you be more liable to use, like, the warlock of the fiend that Terry broke down in our second goblin episode? Or do you even want a spellcaster in and around Knolls? How do you feel about this? I like the cultists. I don't know how I feel about the fanatic. Um, if I am running a primarily human cult of Yenogu, I like them. Yeah. If I'm running a no war band, get the shit out. No war bands don't give a shit about magic. They are about blood and slaughter. If someone is casting fireball and blowing people up in flame, I, I, I feel like, um, disintegrate would be uh, incredibly unsatisfying to a knoll, yeah. right? Just to see some dude turn to dust, like, that that doesn't have the the viscera of it. That doesn't have the well, n- none texture of the, of the kill that yeah, they look for, right? None, none of the spells that the cult fanatic, or, like, none of it's knollish. No, right? R- so, for a human cult of Yanogu, 100%, do it. For a warband, nah. Nah, man. Nah. The the maybe maybe the cultist of the of the fiend like the warlock of the fiend that we saw maybe because that that had a that had a couple punches in it that takes you from a cr two to a cr seven though I mean yeah put him next to a flint he's just the flint's pocket caster yeah I guess like if, if that makes a certain amount of sense but they've still got to be early in their transformation because eventually they're just going to be wild rabid like they're not. Can you imagine them trying to maintain concentration on a battlefield? Well, this is why I think they're charisma casters, right? It, it Charisma, it, it's the warlock casting stat. It's the sorcerer casting stat. This is part of their blood. It's not something that they've learned, right? It's a gift given to them. And like, I look at the Flint. I see them smart enough to have one of these guys uh, beside them. And you don't need a stable mind to cast spells as a warlock. Fair. Right? So you could be cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. And still cast Armor of Agathus. Sure. Sure. I mean, I guess. I just, I really like the ferocity and the animalistic behavior that we have seen so far. And the cult fanatic doesn't doesn't really no. fit that narrative for me. Um, and it's because they're so closely tied to hyenas. 
We actually have three more animalistic kind of allies as well. Okay. Um, that are closely related to gnolls, but they're listed elsewhere in the source books. Um, if you don't know where to look for them, you'll never find these nasty bastards because they're not listed under gnolls. So let's actually jump over to Pepperina and see what she has to say about the first one on our list. Thanks, guys. This is Pepperina, and I am still at the Lucky Liar Tavern in Lonelywood. And I was in here hanging out drinking with the locals the other day when a logger came in, completely traumatized about a creature he had seen. He described it as having the head of a badger, the legs of a deer, and the body of a large hyena. He said the stench was something he'd never smelled before and will never forget. Its maw was covered in dripping fluid that reeked of death. It didn't have fangs, but instead bony ridges that appeared hard as steel as it crushed the bones of his friends. He heard it crying out in the voices of the fallen around him, almost mocking their pain. After hearing this, I had to know more about this beast. And it turns out it was the Lycrota he was talking about. Now, they were created at the same time as the gnolls, when the hyenas ate those slain by Yanagu during his rampage on the material plane. Some turned to gnolls, and some turned into other things, including the Lycrota. They're a terrifying combination of clever and cruel. They take pleasure in their kills, making it last with torture and deceit. Although they are smarter and tougher than most gnolls, they are unlikely to lead a tribe. However, they can influence the leader and offer advice during battle. Gnolls see the Lycrota as entertainment, getting almost as much pleasure watching them horrifically drag on their kills as they would doing the killing themselves. Now getting into their stats, they're a large monstrosity and are chaotic evil. No surprise there. They have a 14 armor class with natural armor. Their hit points are 67 or 9d10 plus 18. And they are crazy fast with a speed of 50 feet. That's like holy shit fast. They are really strong. That's their most powerful stat. They have a pretty good dex and con. Their wisdom is a little bit above the average man, and they do not have very good charisma. Their skills are deception or plus two and perception plus three. They have dark vision up to 60 feet. I imagine they do a lot of their hunting at night. And their passive perception is 13. Their languages are abyssal and null, and they are a challenge rating of three. Now, they have keen smell, which gives them advantage on wisdom perception checks that rely on smell. They have kicking retreat, which if they use their hooves to attack, it can take the disengage action as a bonus action. My favorite feature is mimicry, which the Crota can mimic animal sounds and humanoid voices. A creature that hears the sound can tell if they are imitations if they succeed on a DC 14 wisdom check. They also have Rampage, which if they reduce a creature to zero hit points with a melee attack on their turn, they can use a bonus action to move up to half their speed, which is still 25 feet, to make another attack with its hooves. 
they do have a multi-attack, which allows them to make one bite and one attack with their hooves. Their bite is a melee weapon attack with a plus six to hit, a reach of five feet. On a hit, they get eight damage or a 1d8 plus four of piercing damage. If they score a critical hit, it rolls the damage dice three times instead of twice. With their hooves, that's also a melee attack. With a plus six to hit, a reach of five feet. On a hit, they get 11 damage or 2d6 plus four bludgeoning damage. I absolutely love these things. They are horrible and gross in the best ways possible. I love that they can mimic the cries of the people that they've slain. I imagine you've always got your guard up at night in your camp. There's always that one that's taking watch. I imagine one of these off in the bushes just mimicking the cries of a little girl or the screams of a woman or even the voice of one of their friends that they heard calling their name, luring your party one by one out of the camp. It would be absolutely terrifying and a fantastic way to split up the party. Now, I've got to go because Billy just said he's buying a round of shots for everybody in the bar and you know I cannot pass up a free drink. So if you need to get a hold of me, you can find me on Instagram at pepperina underscore sparkle gem. Thanks, guys. Back to you. You could really tell Peps is a mom because she's got that clear and obvious teacher voice. I could sit down and listen to her like read a dictionary. I absolutely fucking love it. I think it's a lot of fun. Um, had you ever heard of uh, Lucratas before? Uh, no. Peps hadn't either. I only know them because I have gone through Volos about a thousand times. Yeah. Right? But they're oh, they're a holdover from previous editions. Like, I went digging I've, I've heard the name. I don't think I've ever fought one. No, and it, it would be rare that you would. Uh, for the most part, these guys, they've got very specific uses. But this is just another advisor archetype in a mob setting. 5e fucking loves their advisor archetypes. Yeah, yeah, it really does. So I and I'm not a big I'm not a big fan. Honestly, I get big bar guest feels from him. He's absolutely not. Uh, I, th- looking at the actual mechanics of them, they are fairly dissimilar. But like bar guests kind of have the same kind of feel in a in a warband. No, absolutely not. A bar guest is attacking the goblins it's a part of. A Lucrata is sitting back and helping and like they're, they're intelligent, they're strategists. Yeah. Okay. They are meant to to help the warband move forward. So they really are an advisor. A bar guest is nothing like a vet, like an advisor. They're a boogeyman, right? So um you can see there's clear tactics because they're not as bloodthirsty and they're pretty smart. And so um it's it's gonna rely on all their skills and not their attacks necessarily. Mm-hmm. First, obviously, it's going to try to use its mimicry ability and lure people away to split the party, which means it needs to know you're there before you know it's there. And without any advantage on stealth, it's going to hide in darkness and rely on its dark vision. I like I like that um, almost as its own little boogeyman thing, separate from Knowles entirely. Even. Yeah, I, I really do think that there are two different uses yeah. for a Lucrata. Um, you also notice that it can mimic humanoid voices, but it doesn't speak common. Um, it's kind of like a Kenku. It's, if it's heard it, it can mimic it. 
So how would you play this as a DM? Again, it doesn't have stealth, so it's difficult to stalk the party and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, it almost needs to have an advantageous environment for it. Yeah, I, I find these guys, I mean, they're they're wise enough. They'll be able to find a good ambush spot and they will sit and wait. And the second a party is close enough, it could sit there and start drawing them over with the mimicked screams of the dead that it was eating last night. Yep. Right? Yeah, but then, okay, so that's it when it's doing its solo thing. When I look at them and I see them as part of a, a war band, I see their main tactic is going to be a combination of its speed multi-attack and it's kicking retreat yep so it's going to run into battle because it's got the 50 foot movement speed right so it's going to get in get off its multi-attack which includes the hoof attack which is needed to trigger the kicking retreat which then as a bonus action allows it to disengage and move the rest of its speed back out of melee remember these guys are about as big as a horse yeah and they don't have to hit with the hooves attack they only have to attack with it yeah that's that's pretty powerful. You have even two of these in and among the gnolls that are holding you, like they're tying you down. Keeping in mind as well, the hyenas are going to get advantage when this guy moves in and out, right? Like um, having another fast movement creature on the battlefield is huge. I also like seeing this twist, this addition to a, just a critical hit rule. It, it is a blatant glaring omission in a lot of D&D 5e. Like, how often do we see this turn up? Honestly, almost never. Like, you never get special critical rules in 5th edition compared to previous things. Where yeah. No. The stuff was keened or, you know, on a, a the, this thing hits on a critical of 17 to 20. And, like, the, there's there used to be so much more of it in previous editions. I think it complicated the math a lot of the time. Yep. But I was okay with that math being complicated. It's it's missing from this. So I, I, I like to see it. Um, these guys, like, like we said... So these guys, um, like you said, with their stalking and whatnot from the shadows and stuff, it it makes me sad because of the stat block um, not reflecting the flavor text. Yeah. The yeah. flavor text itself um, really makes a point of saying that the bony ridges are as strong as steel instead of teeth, right? Like, th- they don't have fangs. They've got these these bones. Yeah, yeah, right? That they're, they're sitting there, like, tearing you apart with. So that's why you get this critical, right? But then you don't get any of the other shit like the smell or the horrible like dripping um, uh, stomach acids that are coming out of its mouth and stuff. I feel like you're going to smell these guys before you see them. So they're ambush. Like they're running in to get that ambush and running out again. Mm -hmm. They're not waiting until you're five feet away. You will smell them first. And I think these guys are wise enough to understand that they'll be able to stand up wind. Yeah. I just just wish that they had a aura effect with the stench that makes you sickened. Or uh, a breath weapon because of the the spittle, uh, the acid and stuff. We just don't get it. Like, I want these guys to be a little bit higher CR. Yeah. And to have more things that reflect the flavor. And unfortunately, we see that a lot in Volo specifically. The lore outweighs the mechanics. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it reeks of that tone of having, you know, the veteran level one fighter. Yeah. Right? You're not a veteran at level one. Like, you've got to do some tap dancing to justify having been to five wars and being only still. Yeah. Right? Like, look, I feel like if they're going to bother to tell us in the lore that a Lacrata cannot be tracked or it's nearly impossible because their hooves are, are imp- like, they're identical to deer hooves and stuff. Can I just th- say I love that? 
Yeah, oh, look, that was a fantastic detail. Yeah. But they should give you a fucking DC. Yeah, right. Give us the mechanic for it. Don't make me have to make it up on the spot based on what level my players are at. Just give me, it's a DC 22. That's uh, good that, and hard. Funny enough, that was the number I was going to say. Oh, yeah? Like, spot on. I was like, know what, friends? Wizards didn't give you one. So it's a mimic will. <laughs> Here's it's a DC 22 yeah, to okay. figure out that these things aren't deer. That's, that's so funny. Um, we might have been spending too much time breaking down stat blocks. Oh, yeah. Day, yeah. So. Uh, all I see everything in stat blocks now, just in my day-to-day life. Uh, I'll get you to seeing things in spreadsheets. That's how I operate. No, no, thank you. No. Um, okay. All right. So, Lacrados are fun and they're weird, but Dave is going to up the ante a little bit more to a large hyena demon that can add a nasty punch to a warband. Uh, hey guys, Dave here. I'm still up uh, in the Eldine Reaches. Uh, I did actually speak to Olian, you know, the arch druid up here. And uh, uh, in the middle of our conversation, we were attacked the, the gnolls that uh, we came across last time on the way here. I guess that was just like a scouting party, but more of them came up uh, a- a- and attacked us. You should have seen the crazy shit that Olian could do to these guys. It did not take him long to get rid of all of them it was nuts man you, you'll never believe i'll tell you more about it later but anyways anyways today here i'm, I'm gonna keep going on about gnolls so more specifically here uh the shosuvas okay now uh these shosuvas these are essentially like hyenas with stingers uh, they are demonic and they are sent by yianagu to aid like the the most powerful uh, gnolls uh, in the warband in fact Anyone that has one of these Shosuvas really is only second uh, to a Flind in the warband. Uh, this is a reward for, for triumphs uh, that they have achieved in battle and a harbinger of great victories and, and you know, all that happy stuff that Knowles want to look forward to. But again, these guys are our are, are companions, okay? Uh, they do work for a particular Knoll in the warband. They're not exact. They are part of it, but they do take their orders from their master. Think of like uh, having a dog. Like your dog's going to listen to you, but you know, he's going to chill with your buddies too, right? Now again, these Shosuvas are hyena demons do, that are gifted to extremely powerful gnolls. Uh, as, as typically, it would be someone like a Fang of Yinagu. Uh, now, after a warband achieves great victory is when you're going to start finding uh, these Shosuvas manifesting. Uh, they will show up in a puff of smoke or, you know, there'll be theatrics to it. Like, it's not just, you know, all willy-nilly mundane kind of thing. Like, they're coming from the abyss. In battle, they will uh, bite down on something and then use their stinger tail to, to poison the the thing that they're attacking, the creature that they're attacking. Uh, and anything that has been stung by the Shosuva stinger is obviously quite easy for the other gnolls nearby to uh, to finish off. A Shosuva is a large fiend, okay? They got an AC of 14, and they got a heck of a lot of hit points, uh, which is 3d10 plus 39. So uh, that's that's pretty... That's, that's quite a bit. Their speed is 40 feet. Uh, their strength and constitution are high, like a 17 and 18. Their dex and wisdom are above average at a 13 or a 14. And their intelligence and charisma are lacking. Uh, their saving throws, their dex, they get a plus four. Con is a plus six. Wisdom is a plus five. Uh, they are resistant to cold, fire, lightning, bludgeoning, piercing, and slashing from non-magical attacks. And they are immune to poison. They are also immune to being charmed, frightened, or poisoned. Uh, they get dark vision and an above average passive perception. 
They speak abyssal, null, and have telepathy out to 120 feet. They are a CR-8. Uh, yeah, I can see why they're a CR-8, because you can't hit them. They got good saves, and they're immune to a bunch of crap. Uh, they do get the Rampage ability, which, when a Shosuva reduces a creature to zero hit points with a melee attack on its turn, uh, it can take a bonus action to move up to half its speed and make another bite attack. Uh, but, I mean, half its speed's 20 feet. That's that's pretty good. So a Shosuva makes two attacks, one with its bite and one with its stinger. The bite is a plus 7 and does 4d10 plus 4 piercing. The tail stinger is a plus 7 to hit. It's got 15 foot reach uh, and it does 2d8 plus 4 piercing. Uh, afterwards, the target must succeed on a DC 14 con save or become poisoned. Well poisoned, the target is also paralyzed. The target can repeat its saving throw at the end of each of its turns, ending the effect on a successful uh, save. Holy shit! Um, so, 15 foot reach? That's something that you don't get much in 5th edition at all. 5 foot reach? Yeah. 10 foot reach? Sure. 15 though? I mean, I know it's a large creature, but that's, that's pretty damn good. Uh, I mean, you figure... If its speed is 40 feet and it reduces a creature to zero, it can move half of its speed again and it can reach 15 feet. You're looking at, you know, quite a, a range that this guy can hit at all in one round. Uh, these things can move around the battlefield. They can take a player down and move on to the next one very, very quickly. And on top of that, a lot of things uh, don't hurt it. Um, well, I mean, they do hurt it, but they're, it's resistant to it. I would use these guys. I would maybe drop a couple of these in an area that uh, the players have wandered into that they shouldn't have. Make this the, guys, come on. You're not supposed to be here. Do not go into this fight expecting to win. You need to run, all right? You will not stand up to, guys, come on. You're not thinking straight. You're going to do it anyways. Come on, guys. And then all of a sudden, five people are dead and they're bitching at you. Why did that happen? Because you're fucking stupid. That's why. Hey, sorry. 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 <clears throat> uh, anyways, you can have a lot of fun with these guys. Yeah, a couple of these things are, are going to be a challenge for, for you know, tier two, tier three party. So the other idea I like about these is if you had maybe an obstruction where your players can't see what's coming and all they can see is this stinger coming up from behind a rock as it's coming towards them uh, and like around a corner uh, and then instead of what they're expecting I would imagine would be a scorpion you have this large hyena demon with a scorpion tail kind of thing uh, I'm not sure they know what to do with it I know that if I put my players up against one of these they, they wouldn't know what the hell they're looking at uh, anyways guys uh, I gotta get going I got some great information here from Olin and I, I gotta I gotta keep tracking down more leads guys I'm I feel like I'm real Real close to figuring this out. So I'll send it back to you guys, and uh, I will catch you later. Do you get the impression that, as a dungeon master, Dave just fucking hates his players? I've met his players. He's he's fine. <laughs> oh, guys, I love you. Well, get fucked. I love, <laughs> I love four of the five of you. You know who you are. Oh, now they're going to fight amongst each other to figure out who's who. With the Flesh Dollar's uh, crazy burst of 90 foot in a round and the Kurotas and Hyenas moving at 50, the Shusuva doesn't feel fast. It feels sluggish, even. 
40 feet of movement is not not nothing, right? I mean, yeah, I guess that that makes sense. I I, w- I would like to. I feel like it would stay kind of where the fang of Yanogu is. Yeah, it's going to stay with its master, right? Like, yeah. unless it's got a good fucking reason why it would split, right? So that that makes a certain amount of sense. We'll just keep the fiends together, right? But yeah, with this 15 foot fucking tail attack, though, does it really need to step that far away from its from the fang? Would it not protect the fangs? I think it's. I think well. it's. A, I think it's a guard dog. I, maybe even a mount for the fangy Yanogu. What's the? Uh, what are the mental stats on it? Let's see how guard doggy it is. Uh, it's got a seven int. That's so, okay. It's, it, that's an ogre. It's an ogre, which often just become dumb guards. However, it has a wisdom of fourteen. Yeah. Okay. So it interacts with the world around it. So kind of guard doggy. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, how's its charisma? Is it reading people? Uh, no, not really. It's negative numbers. It's got a nine. Okay. Well, still, it's I mean, just that, below average. Yeah, that's it'll, it'll tell this thing's mad at my master. Yeah, I mean, Dave mentions that you can use a couple of Shusuva to really knock a party down, but they're supposed to be really fucking rare. So do you do, do you do that? How many of these CR eight creatures that are supposed to be companions are you going to put in a warband? Honestly, I would give maybe one, maybe two. Like, there, I'm not giving very many of them as as a companion. Just because of that hefty CR8, right? You're going to outweigh the effectiveness of the biggest, baddest member of a Null Warband in the Flind real quick if you got more than one of these. Yeah, I'm I'm the same way. Like two in a Warband and one in an encounter. Yeah. Right? Like I'm not going to stack four of these guys in a room to guard. Like Nulls aren't guarding shit, right? No. Why would they be? No, they're they're out there for the slaughter. And and even still, like yeah, these are gifted to fangs uh, to do their thing, but um, their thing is slaughter. Their thing is butchery. Yeah, like these are gifted to attack. These are not gifted to defend. Yeah, and I really like the fact that they've got the paralysis thing too, because again, with that and a flind on the battlefield, you're wiping people out because of the action economy. I might be off base here, but like I'm getting heavy Vrock feels from these as well. Well, I mean, the, the, with that tail attack, that that pale white bony looking color, like it, they feel like dog rocks. Dog right? rocks. Yeah, it it feels that maybe rocks might be something we might see a little bit more of in a warband. Well, interestingly enough, we're gonna bring those up because some Noel aficionados out there are waiting for us to cover that one final stat block of the rare gargantuan fiend that accompanies Knowles, the big bad nasty pet of yunogu himself and we're going to turn to dan's big bad nasty pet brad who's apparently having some financial woes in the yawning portal yeah dernan hold on one second i'll get back to you i just got to finish talking to yeah yeah no what no i'll get back to you just give me a minute sorry about that dernan is I've been here so long, he's starting to charge me rent. And when I can't pay rent, well, it means i got to tend the bar and do some other things. But I've got work to do. This is important. Anyways, I just learned of the most fascinating and horrifying creature I think I've heard about in my time here. I was talking to some adventurers who just returned from the abyss in the River Styx. And they reported of this most abominable creature I've ever heard of. This thing is called the Krokotoic, I believe they said. This thing is a demonic pet of Yanogu. While it resembles a hyena, it looks more like a mud skipper. Uh, it's covered in teeth, fur, and has this horrifying hyena-like laugh. 
this thing is used to ferry smaller demons across the river Styx or wherever they need to be gone. It basically holds them in its gullet and it vomits them out in this horrifying, nauseating manner. This thing is not to be trifled with. It has a challenge rating, I'm told, of about 14 and not to be messed with for sure. This thing has amazing strength. This thing is out of the world as far as strength is concerned. Average dexterity of an incredibly high constitution given the fact that it's holding creatures in its mouth, it's crossing the river sticks, it has to have some sort of constitution. Not overly intelligent, your average wisdom, and surprisingly, a little bit charismatic. Uh, when attacking this thing, be warned, it's resistant to cold damage, fire damage, lightning damage, bludgeoning damage, piercing and slashing damage that's non-magical. It's immune, completely immune to poison, and it cannot be charmed, frightened, or poisoned. It has dark vision of 120 feet, and it understands Abyssal, but it's unable to speak it. This thing is amphibious at home, both in the land and the water. It's resistant to magic and has advantage on any th saving throws against spells and other magical effects. All of its weapon attacks are considered to be magical, uh, in which case its only weapon attack it has is a bite attack. But it, with a plus 14 to hit, do not let this thing get near you. There's a good chance it's going to get through. Dealing 10d6 plus 9 piercing damage. You do not want this thing to get anywhere near you. This thing has what it calls a secure memory, which means that it's immune to the waters of the river Styx, which wipe your mind, and also it's immune to any effect that would steal or modify its memories or detect or read its thoughts. It also is capable of making a standing leap, giving it a long jump of 60 feet or a high jump of 30 feet, and that's from a standstill. This thing will be on you faster than you can believe, so keep your distance. On top of all of that, as I mentioned earlier, it stores other demons of Yanogu in its mouth. And on a turn, it can, as an action, it can disgorge its allies with a recharge of six. It opens its mouth and disgorges 1d4 Barlugas, 3d6 gnolls led by a gnoll fang of Yanogu, 6d6 dretches, or 1d3 Vok. Each creature it disgorges appears in an occupied space within 30 feet of the Croactoic's mouth or the next closest unoccupied space. So to be clear, it's one of those options that can do 1d4 Barguras, 3d6 gnolls led by a gnoll fang of Yanogu, or 66 stretches, or 1d3 Vrocks. Any of those are terrifying to see, and when you're already dealing with the Croactoic itself, these things are just going to add more mayhem to the battle. I can't imagine the horror of seeing this thing coming towards you. You may not think much of it, it looks like this big fish coming towards you, but once you know what it is capable of, this thing should strike fear in even the most seasoned adventurer. I think its challenge rating actually underlies its abilities, given its speed, its might, and its ability to summon forth allies. So if you see this thing, do your best not to be seen by it, try and stay hidden. If you are going to attack it, make it an ambush and make it count. Do as much damage as you can up front because the longer this battle goes on, the stronger and more difficult it's going to get as more creatures pour forth. Well, that's about all I have to tell you about the Krokuk Togek. Best of luck, my friends. Safe adventures, and we'll talk to you soon. Back to you, Adam and Dan. Yeah, Dernan, I'm coming. I'm coming. I'll clean those cups. Just give me a second. Bye, guys. This thing is my fucking favorite. It is my favorite thing ever, and I want a goddamn mini of it. I love it. I love the Krokuk Togek. I... I, I could just imagine what the mini is and just get like a Thomas the Train set and like make it a slug thing. I was going to just grab a fleshlight and put a whole bunch of like, like fucking Noel minis inside it and then squeeze the end of it and watch them all. Blah. 
Uh, I thought you were gonna say a fleshlight with teeth, and I'm like, I'm pretty sure Terry has one of those. <laughs> you got one of those like little wind up jittery teeth and put it in. <laughs> God damn it! <laughs> All right, so. So it, this thing can spit up to 3d6 moles. Uh, can we use something other than the word spit? <laughs> Swallow? Uh, Dan, why would you take us to that negative nasty place? Drools? Um, no. 3d6 gnolls plus one fang of Yanogu per turn. Everything else that's listed there is a demon, including the rocks you were talking about. Yep. So do you let this thing spew flins and shusuvas and lucratas and hyenas and all the other things too if your story needs it? I mean... Yes, but only because the Krokotoke is the Krokotoic. Yes. Right? So it's not like it is a Krokotoic, right? The, there is one of these things. Yeah. And if Yenogu needs it to spit out a flint, it's going to split out a well, flint. Well, it, it says that it carries, it like Yenogu will travel in it as well. Like yeah. This is how he gets around the river sticks. So, yeah. So frankly, they've given us the, the Balguras are in there and they're large sized creatures. Yep. So I have no problem with a Lakrata or a Shisuva. Right, being in there as well. So I don't see any problem with that. Think how many hyenas, because they're small-sized creatures. Think how many you could fit in compared to 3d6 gnolls. If you can spit up 17, no, 3d19, if you can spit up 19 gnolls. A turn. A turn. Then it can spit up, what, 38 hyenas. Yeah. This, This also makes me really regret and miss the colossal size. Yeah, absolutely. This guy should be colossal. Yeah, he's he like gargantuan just doesn't quite do it. That's nine that's 19 things walking out of it a turn. This is out there for more than a couple turns. I mean, you're getting 60 things climbing out of this thing. Like, yeah, considering that gargantuan is a 4x4 four four square on a map, that's which is 16. Yeah. Right? Like it just doesn't seem big enough. This thing should be a fucking backpack that lands on your table. Kind of, right? And it it's I don't see it as having like a gateway that is spawning things like we see in a astral dreadnought where it opens its mouth and you go to a demi plane no no he's legitimately holding like this is a submarine yeah he's got these things in it he's a furry smelly giggling submarine um so speaking of smelly furry giggling submarines is this a terry reference again uh maybe no um as a player who are smelly and furry um how where does this thing rate on your priority list to attack? Because remember, uh, again, every single turn, the DM has a 16% chance of spewing out more enemies to fight. And it's got this massive list of resistances. It's got a fuck ton of hit points with a 17 D20 plus 119. And you're going to be standing there a while and beating it, uh, beating on it. So maybe a Terry reference? There we go. Yeah. Um, so, but this thing is a slithering, oozing hindrance to action economy. So where do you set this thing on the priority to kill? Honestly, fucking high. Because it's not slithering and oozing. This thing has movement. It is not going to sit still. It is going to spew this shit out. And then, because me as a DM, I can roll that D6 whenever I want to see it if it spits it out, right? Mm-hmm. So I can do it at the beginning of its turn. So I can strategize. It knows it's going to spit something out. It is going to move 60 feet into battle, either through swimming or just moving across land or that crazy 60-foot jump, 60 feet long, 30 feet high. That's fucking insane. Yeah. So it's going to get in, spew up another shit ton of scary things, and then get out again. If you can get this thing in range... Kill it now. 
this again is making me really want to have a miniature for it. And you would have thought with it being a, uh, spoiler warning, a key player in uh, Descent into Avernus. Like the Krokotoic is in Avernus in that module. You think that model set would have given us one, but. Okay. Yeah, you know what? Yeah, I think it's more important to get a Zerial out of that than it is to get the Krokotoic or even a Yunagu. But like, I love the Krokotoic. It's one of my favorite monsters. Um, it's one of my favorite stat blocks and it's so flavorful and it is so gross. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of gross things, um, I just want to take a moment to thank everybody who helped out with this episode. Um, we really miss having you guys here. Seeing Adam's face only. You're welcome. Week after week is uh, maybe making me oh. descend into a no-like madness. So uh, I don't think they masturbate like that, though, Dan. Anyways, guys, I miss you and I hope you're staying safe. Uh, I just want to remind all the listeners out there to uh, go ahead and check us out on Instagram, Facebook, and r slash It's a Mimic on Reddit. Subscribe on all of them. Yes. You can always reach out to us through our email at info at It's a Mimic dot com or hit us on the subreddit as well because that's where we have a lot of our discussions. Yep. Uh, and we're always looking for more mailbag episodes and, and whatnot. So um, these questions that we're going to get that you guys give us, they all make it onto the list even though we roll randomly on the list. They never leave the list until we address them. Uh, we were just talking before we sat down to record. We've been doing this a while and I've seen the mailbag lists. There are questions that have been on there for a couple years now. Oh yeah, that have just never been hit. Ne like just never been hit. So they stay on the list and we will eventually address them. So go ahead and ask us things. Uh, and uh, But I will, I will say this as well. When you reference something that, that happened in a previous episode, let us know what episode. Yeah, what we're please. We're 108 episodes into the regular part of this. This, I believe, is episode 192 that we've released overall. Oh, yep. Yeah. Yeah. That, that tracks. So, like, just hit us up with an episode so we could understand what perspective you're coming from. Yeah. We got a message from someone. I had to clarify what episode they were talking about. They said, Your point at the end of the episode was really solid, Adam. What? Yeah. I mean, thank you. I will assume that's every episode because I'm just brilliant like that. But uh, I will constantly go on Podbean to like get the someone posts there fairly frequently. But the order of which we get the comments is whatever comment is newest. So like occasionally I'll see on episode 34, this person said a thing and I'm like, episode 34 was a while ago, guys. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So before we continue, there is a really cool cyclical chant that they give us in volos the first gift is hunger it is his blessing it is our call to bring death the second gift is death death proves our strength death purges our fear the third gift is fear we fear that we will fail him we fear the onset of hunger and then it leads right back into hunger which is the first the first gift is hunger the so and so on so those so are on. the three pillars of no life hunger death and fear it as someone who was raised in the church who went to bible college who understands the idea of liturgy this maybe adds a little bit of credence to what megan was saying earlier about the religious fanaticism this is a mantra this is a droning you chant. don't need to have a religious bend to have a, a no uh, sorry you're completely right but that's kind of what this rings to me right yeah, it does. It does feel that way. I just, I love this. What I would want to do as a DM is record my own voice saying this 
about 15 different times, overlay it, loop it, and run it in the background. We did something like this for uh, Ra- uh, Deep Dark of Radiance, right? Like I had you, Megan, and Terry, I think it was. It was, was it Terry? Was it Dave? It was Dave. Yeah, I think it might have been Dave. But I was like, hey guys, I need you to sing something. And each of you were like, fuck you, Dan, no. And I'm like, no, seriously, I need you to sing this. I did. And you did. You did a great job at it. So um, it added a lot of depth to that. Having that pre-recorded to play for your players at the table when they hear this the first time would just hit them like a sledgehammer. All right. So now that we know what the war band is is chanting and screaming as they're coming along, let's build a war band using okay, cool. the tables that are available in Volos. Let's do it. All right. So before we get into it, remember, not all war bands are going to bother with names, but some famous ones are going to get names from their enemies. All right, and others, I mean, sometimes a Flind or a particularly powerful um, Pack Lord will give a name, but and, they're pretty straightforward. Yeah, and Yanogu will gift names as well. We talked about that last episode as well. Yeah, um, but then you get to roll the dice and see what the uh, size and breakdown of your warband will be. And then you add a modifier to that number based on the kind of leadership uh, the warband will have. And after that, you add special creatures, a shared physical trait, which is neat. Uh, some notable behavior tactics, and then a really cool demonic influence detail. So what's interesting here is that there's no entry for anything on this list, on any of these tables, about cultists or cult fanatics. Hmm. So they they say in the lore that it's rare. It's rare enough to not add onto the table. All right, so the first thing we're going to do is come up with the uh, warband name. Dan, roll 2d6. 2d6, all right, here we go. Got an uh, 9. No, no, no. A five and a four. A five and a four. Um, so you are the Rotted Mutilators. Cool. Uh, now roll 1d4 plus one. Five. There are five fangs of Yunagu. Oh, we're, we're, we're going to be a big war band, I have a feeling. Um, now roll a 1d4 plus one again. Another five. Oh, shit. That's uh, five hunters that are part of it. So you see, like, there are not that many hunters comparatively. Yeah, that that's actually shockingly low. Like you'll have an equal, almost equal amount of uh, fangs of Yanogu as you do. You're poten- potentially fewer hunters, even right. Yeah. So these guys are really meant to clean up afterwards and to to pepper and like they're not the main archery force. No, but I mean every single knoll has a bow for the most part, right? Yeah. The knoll warriors, the largest body of things, has it, but. Anyways, moving on. Um, the Flesh Gnawers as well. Let's uh, roll 2d4. 2d4 for a Flesh Gnawer. Yep. Only had the 1d4 with me, so I'll just roll it twice. Five. Uh, you're just consistent through and through, aren't you? Yep. Um, and now roll 6d6 for the common gnolls. 6d6 for the common gnolls. Of course, I only grabbed five. That is 17. I got to roll one more dice. Plus two, 19. So that's 19 that you just rolled. So yep. 19 regular gnolls. Okay. Um, and now let's do 4d6 for hyenas. Oh, my d6s love me and hate my players. That is another 21. Wow. That's freaking more than, than your gnolls. So um, roll a d6 to find out your leadership. Sure. A two. A two means that you got a pack lord, which means that... These numbers that we've rolled so far don't change. However, if you'd rolled a one, you would have gotten a flind, so the, all these numbers would have doubled. Oh, okay. If you roll a two to four, it's a pack lord. And if you roll a five or a six, you cut all of them in half. 
Okay. Right, because there's no there's no leader, right? I'm glad I got kind of the middle of the road on that one. Sure. Uh, let's roll a d20. All right. And a, a 17. Uh, you get 2d4 mod demons. That's a 1. 4 mod demons. Okay, so that means that we've got the rotted mutilators. There are... Really quick math here. Uh, you've rolled up 60. That's Ma- not members. a small warband. That That is not a small warband, but it is an average one. Yeah. Um, well, it's it's also, you know, a little bit less than half hyena. Well, uh, it's a little bit less than a third hyena. Yeah. Right. So um, there's a lot of gnolls here to, to run through. This is not absolutely killer, but you wouldn't want to fight them all at once. No. You want to take this warband on a piece at a time. This will fucking kill your party. So far, this is already well over a CR 20. Yes. Yeah. Um, we don't even have a flint. No, there's not a flint in here. Or uh Shusuva. Or 1D3 Trolls. Or a Hezru. Right? Like, there are some options in here for shit to... Uh, 2D6 Ghouls. Or Witherlings. Huh. Right? Like, there's a lot you can do in here. Um, you also get to roll a d10 for physical traits. All right. Is that a green Shasuva in the art there? Yeah, yeah, it is. Oh, that thing is gross. I love it. A uh, nine. Uh, everybody here has long black fangs. So the rotted mutilators have these long black fangs to them. Cool. All yep. Right. Let's roll a d8 to find out a unique behavior. All right. They masturbate furiously. No, uh, four. Uh, these guys carry and spread disease. That makes sense with the rotting part of their name as well. I love how these charts always do this. They tend to line up nicely. Yeah, uh, the the character backstory generation chart. Xanathar's. Uh, Xanathar's. Oh, it's money. I love it. Um, now, let's have a demonic influence. Let's roll a d12. A d12 for demonic influence. Atados. Which means that animals around them become rabid and vicious. That is just the demonic influence on the world around them. There are a number of ones in here, like residents suffer bursts of short-term madness, terrible storms erupt, uh, quarrels turn violent, yeah. things like that, right? Cool. So, the rotted mutilators with long black fangs, they carry and spread diseases. It's 19 gnolls, five fangs of Yinagu, five hunters, five flesh nars, and one pack lord. They also have four maw demons following them around, and 21 hyenas. That's not little. That is going to fuck up a a kobold tribe. Oh, yeah. Or an orc horde, right? Like, you need a, a whole shit ton of orcs to go up against this, right? Mm-hmm. So we're talking this, although we just built a small army off of a handful of rolls. I could take a break in a D&D session, say, all right, bathroom break, roll a handful of dice, and suddenly have my Null Warband. Yeah. That's terrifying. I absolutely freaking love it. And if what I'm rolling isn't good enough, I will just decide to give it a flind. Boom. Double the numbers. Right? Or if it's way too powerful, then I will have the numbers and not give it a leader. Right? Yeah. And then cultists. Yeah. Right? So Fill, fill the rank with a couple dozen of those guys. So there's been a lot of talk about Knowles so far. Um, now that we have a full list of what exactly we're looking at, do you have any more insights on kind of the makeup of the mob itself? Is there anything that you would point out to say, hey, we didn't really touch on this specifically? Let's let's roll dice for this. Sure. I got an 11. I got, an 11. I got a 3. All right. So, honestly, I think that the Fang of Yinagu that has the Shusuva with it, 
is going to be second in command. Yeah. Yeah. That, that makes sense to me. Uh, a couple of Lucratas in the mix are going to hold more sway than the average Noel because they can think, they can manipulate their advisors to the Pack Lord or the Flind as well. I mean, a Lucrata is more powerful than a, than a Pack Lord is. Yeah. I think for every uh, Fang of Ianogu, we need to have more Noles. For every um, Pack Lord or Flind or, or um, what have you, we need to have more Witherlings. And I love having more Witherlings in my Noel Warbands. I don't like that they're only one option yeah. on, the, on the D20 table. I mean... It makes sense that they would just have Witherlings with them. Yeah. It, like maybe even just as a sixth wave. So you've finally gotten rid of the warband. Everybody's tired. You're out of spells and ah shit Witherlings. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So it, it the the they focused a lot on the demonic side, which I like. A little bit more of the undead repercussive side of a Noel warband. I would have liked to see a little bit more of. Well, you know. and you can just choose to add this shit yeah, in off the table. Right. Right? But I mean, the fact that the Noel Witherlings make up 10% of your D20 table as well, I mean, that helps. Yeah, I guess that's true. Yeah. Um, keeping in mind that you can at most only get one Shusuba and you have a 5% chance of that on the D20 table. They're CR8, man. Like, I, I yeah. Right. When you build a, a warband like this. I mean, you could get two if you, it's run by Flint, couldn't you? What do you mean? Because Flynn doubles all the numbers. So you get one Shisuva, but then if you have a Flynn, it would double it to maybe be two. No, it... it, it Is it, it after out. that? Yeah. It, oh, okay. You add in the special ones after you double the numbers. So. Okay. That's probably for the best. Yes. <laughs> Otherwise, you could end up with uh, 1d6 trolls or an additional freaking... Fuck. You, you could end up with an extra uh, 36 dretches. Yeah. So... You, you do the doubling before the special features. Yeah, that's fair enough. Fair enough. Campaign ideas, Dan? Last the plot hook? Anything that you want to really dig into here? What is the most interesting... Let, let's say it this way, because we talked about it last uh, last episode. Yeah. Let, let's put it this way. Of the creatures we talked about today, what is the plot hook or the piece of lore that you were the most excited about? I like... Oh, I guess we should roll about it. Yeah. Twelve. All right, you're first. Um, I like the mimicry of the Lacroda. I like what that implies. I like how these guys could just straight up, outside of an, even a Noel-focused uh, campaign, that you could have these guys just be murderous, savage serial killers that draw people out and murder them. Like, it, uh, you see a lot of this in um, a lot of just straight-up horror movies. Um monsters and these creatures of the night luring out people with sounds of pained friends or family or or something like that only to just butcher them i love that for the lacrota it is fan fucking tastic what about you my favorite piece of lore here is that the moment that you kill a flind and it dies any other knoll that picks up its flail becomes a flind oh Megan dropped that on us early and it freaking like that made my imagination just run. Just because you kill the Flynn does not mean that this is over. The Flynn is the last thing I'm fighting. Wipe the battlefield. Keep the Flynn at bay if you can with spells and, and uh, ranged attacks, but kill those other gnolls quickly. Yeah. If it's a cultist or a troll that picks it up, no harm done. But if it is a gnoll, 
they then become a flind. Is that an instant change? Uh, it does not necessarily say that it is or is not, but fuck you, yes it is. At my table, that is a poof of smoke, and now he is a flint. Oh, I, okay, I disagree. Um, I agree that it's a fairly instant thing. I think they, if a knoll picks up that uh, flail, it has one turn where it is paralyzed. Why? Because it is growing. Its bones are snapping. These are the most visceral gory metal fiends on the material plane that we see. Everything about them is about the blood and the guts and the gore of it. So this is going to be the severe body horror of this knoll transforming into this flint. And then you have a flint and it is attacking your party then. Yeah, okay, I'll give it to you. He'll run forward and grab it and then becomes a flint at the beginning or end of his next turn. I'm going to say the end of his next turn. Let him do the growth as his action. And, and yes, or or he just rolls everything with disadvantage as he is just racked with the pain. As, yeah. yeah. Right? Um, and shit, make everything within 30 feet of it activate their rampage. Fuck yeah, why not? Yeah. Everything. Everything gets a rampage. Everything. Including your players will get rampage. So if you drop anybody to zero, you get to move. Yeah. Just oh. just bloodlust. Yeah. Or, oh no, you know the, the flail of madness? The where you just hit a random thing beside you? Everybody make a wisdom save. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. I yeah, 100%. So that's that's pretty fun. I, I like that. But that uh that's pretty much it for Knowles in fifth ed, right? Yeah. So um we got lots of other kind of mobs to go over here. So bear with us. Uh, next week, we're going to be looking at zombies. Now, we've again done a zombie episode in the past as well. We did an undead episode. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but we're going to focus and hone in on the different kinds of zombies. There are enough to fill two episodes, which I'm excited about as a horror fan. Yeah. So um, so stay tuned for that. I really, I, honestly, I don't want to be done with Knowles. I'm going to use them in my campaigns Well, they're your forward. favorite mob. Yeah, they really are. This I, is how I felt with orcs when we were wrapping up orcs. I'm like, but there's still stuff to say. Oh, well, yeah, I could sit here a wax poetic about encounter ideas yeah. and campaigns. But I mean, you know what you're getting into with this feral mob monster at this point. Yeah. After three episodes, I don't feel like I'm doing anything except just... Um, repeating yourself and masturbating? I wouldn't say I'd be repeating myself, but I could talk about Knowles for a long fucking time. Yeah. That, that very much is something that I would want to do. But... That's it for this episode of the It's a Mimic podcast. If you'd like to support us, you can head over to www.itsamimic.com and hit our fancy donate button, or just tell your friends and the rest of your D&D party about the podcast. We're available on iTunes, Spotify, and YouTube, as well as most podcast apps, so they can find us wherever they, they look for their podcasts. Yeah. Anyways, stay safe out there, and let's go find out what's up with Nick. Thank you for listening to another It's a Mimic production. Inquiries, shoutouts, requests, and mailbag questions can be sent to info at itsamimic.com. Hey Adam and Dan. In 5e, the Knoll's motivations and lore are more closely tied to their abyssal origins than they have been in previous editions. Do you prefer to play your Knolls somewhat civilized or as abominable forces of nature? So do we want to roll for it? Sure. I got a one. That's what you get for grabbing my die, you son of a bitch. I got a four. <laughs> um, 
The only reason that Nick is asking this is because he remembers Knowles being like playable characters. Playable characters, yeah. They were more civilized in previous editions. That's a hard no now. We don't need it, man. We got orcs, right? Knowles and orcs were, I mean, their lore was different, but their battlefield tactics were relatively interchangeable. We also have lizard folk, right? Like orcs, lizard folk, and Knowles kind of were this trifecta of raiding savages. Well, and, and look, and there are even more than that if you start to really look around yeah. the fringes of... You know what? This is so much better. This unique flavor, this tie-in, this heavy tie into the ferocity of Yunagu. I'm, I love it. I would keep them away from civilized thinking. They're not going to build structures or work as a team to accomplish the thing. To These guys aren't going to trade. They don't give a fuck about gold. Fuck yeah. your gold. They don't give a shit. I'll take the hand holding the gold. Oh, yeah. you don't want to give it? Too bad. Right? And that's... I don't know, man. I'm all about the abominable forces of nature, as Nick put it. Yeah. Yeah, me too. They wait for us to hit record? I is think it, so. Yeah. yeah. Is that yeah. cool? There's yeah. a little red light that goes on upstairs. Fuck, um, there's about to be. <laughs> <laughs> for your birthday, I'm buying you four fucking ball gags. Can you make it five? God, I wish. <laughs> I'm not sure I understand. Oh, thanks, Siri. <laughs> Thank you for listening to an It's a Mimic production. <laughs> okay, you're done, Gary. <laughs> <laughs>